This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, doing what we can on this program every day to give you the information, the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. Good morning to you. Tuesday morning, and um, man, have we got a show for you and perfect timing of our guest today. Uh, we, today we will be talking about um, fear-mongering, basically, and how nothing, really nothing snowballs online more than or better than fear. If you want to get a movement going, create some fear. And then all of a sudden, a terrorist attack, and the fears become very real. And today we'll be talking with Andrianne Brandt, or Andrianne Berard, about an article she wrote um, called Nothing Snowballs Online Like Fear. And we're going to be learning the, the behind the kind of the behind the fear, the research, the data, what drives fear and what makes it so contagious. Uh, we'll be getting uh, to that. And we kind of knew with the bombings yesterday that it was going to eventually um, hit the American political scene, which it has, um, you know, with quotes from Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. And it's happening. But last night, Super Tuesday the 4th, it's not mega Super Tuesday the 4th. It was just Super Tuesday the 4th. Fairly, they call it the Western Caucus. Uh, it took place in Utah, and it took place uh, in Arizona. And, it, boy, the numbers were incredible. I drove by um, two caucus sites here in Utah, the Republican and the Democrat. And Utah's just so you know, not known for a lot of Democrats. Very, very, very Republican state. Um, but uh, as I drove by, my child's school, elementary school, place was packed with with people – at the Democratic Caucus, which is interesting because uh, a friend of ours said last year they only had three or four people caucusing. This year, place was packed. And I don't know if that's because they don't like the Republican candidates or if they really don't like the Democratic candidates or, I mean, you know, if they didn't like one of the Democratic candidates. But the numbers out of Utah were crazy. Cruz won Utah with about 70% of the vote, 69.2% of the vote. And because he had a majority, because he had more than 50%, he gets all of the 40 delegates. Kasich came in second, 16.9%, which is really interesting because the governor of the state of Utah and also Mitt Romney both said they love Kasich, but they supported Ted Cruz. In fact, the governor of the state of Utah even had just gone to a Kasich rally simply because – and to support him on last Friday – but uh, Kasich doesn't have a path forward, so they've, they instead threw their weight behind Cruz. And Cruz killed it, 69%. Mm. Um, which may have just been an anti-Trump protest kind of vote. Uh, Trump, by the way, had 14% in Utah which, you know, Cruz is going to make a big deal about. Um, another thing that happened that was just kind of crazy in uh, the Democratic caucus, 80 uh, percent of the vote went for Bernie Sanders. 
which is incredible, which I think is probably more, again, an anti-Clinton vote. Clinton carried 20 percent. Because she still won Arizona. She killed in Arizona, right? And that was the bigger number of delegates. So yeah. he, she's still outpacing him. She got uh, delegates uh, out of Trump again, won in Arizona. He got 58 uh, of the delegates in Arizona. He won 47% to Cruz's 24% to Kasich's 10%. And Hillary Rodham Clinton, 41 delegates. She won out of the Democratic caucus. So um, actually, I think in the end, it was about neutral, right? So Clinton won 41 delegates and um, Bernie Sanders, Phil the Burn. Oh, he got 18 delegates out of Utah. So same pretty much. Uh, they haven't moved. Their needle hasn't moved much. Idaho, uh, in Idaho, Cruz won Idaho, 45.4%. Trump came in second, 28%. Rubio still pulled 15, 15.9% in Kasich. Seven percent. Now, so, Cruz, he's pulled off something that no other Republican candidate has. <laughs> he's pulled off a lot of things. He's won two states outright. Oh, wow. Interesting. So this kind of builds on to his story that he well, he can ride this to the— Except they're two kind of— Well, but— In the grand scheme of things, kind of pointless wins. But well, he won. Good yeah. job. He won in Utah? Yeah, but isn't he saying, yeah, but now he's going to run the table. And Wyoming. Yeah. Wyoming? Did we have a Wyoming one? I we didn't did. Know that. that wasn't yesterday. That was a couple weeks ago. See, it oh, just kind of slipped oh. by under the radar. He's won two. Yeah, but completely he, outright. He's got two. So good job. It's because uh, Trump has Florida. Yeah. Yeah, he won Florida outright. So, mm. so Cruz could turn that into something—a talking point. Oh, he you will. Remember, he was saying he was the only one that's beaten uh, yeah. Trump, and it was like he'd won two, and Trump won like fifteen or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it was pointless, but it was true. Totally. Well, and now Cruz is in hot water. He is. He's in some deep doo-doo because um, he made a comment. And now you were telling me because I heard the comment somewhere. um, But uh, he made made a comment basically saying we need to go into communities. What he said, he put out a statement and it said we need to empower law enforcement to patrol and secure Muslim neighborhoods before they become radicalized. He put that out in a statement. Right. He has been asked about the statement, so the actual quote there isn't anywhere, but he's okay. been talking about it, right? Okay, yeah. And so he just, I believe Here's, this was this morning on CNN. It's very simple. It's doing what law enforcement does in any circumstance. If you, if you have a neighborhood where there is a high level of gang activity, the way to prevent it is you increase the law enforcement presence there. And you target the gang members to get them off the street. But you're talking That's about Muslim neighborhoods, not, not radicals particularly. I am talking about any area where there is a higher incidence of radical Islamic terrorism. If you look at Europe, Europe's failed immigration laws have allowed a massive influx of radical Islamic terrorists into Europe. And they are now in in isolated neighborhoods. Hmm. So he's saying if you know where there's a problem... Well, you don't put know the where police there. That's that's the other side of the thing. He's not talking about is we, we there is no the he's, only the only place where there is probably an issue would be in Minnesota. There's been some neighborhoods where right. a handful, like five people, right. have left to go fight in Africa or fight in, right. in the Middle East, and and so those are maybe some areas. And he's he's saying there's uh, allegedly places where we could go, and there's a, an obvious place to go. To, Did you to hear find Islamic what radicals. the police chief? Uh, out of New York set. I mean, he went off because, well, uh, part of this is you're not going to find anything just driving into a community. No. 
You need intelligence. And the best way to get intelligence would be from the community. I was talking to my wife about this, and what this comes down, what this will come down to is most places in the country, there isn't a Muslim neighborhood. <laughs> so what it's going to find out is the, the Muslim family in, in the, down the block is going to be singled out. Yeah. People are going to be watching them for no Something's reason. Something's going on weird They're just there. getting in their they're car and dropping the kids off at school, but we're going to stare at them because right. they're probably doing something. And, and well, and, and he's like, but he's calling it extreme Muslim extremist, Muslim is, Islamist, jihadist, whatever words he wants to use. His his original yeah, what thing was here it? said Muslim neighborhoods before oh, they that, become that was radicalized. His original comment? That's the original That's statement. It. So he's been kind of walking that yeah. back subtly. Yeah. So, but this this is going to the point we're going to be talking about in a minute. He's fear mongering. Yes. And you you are not going to get intelligence from people. That we make afraid and oppress. If you, if it doesn't mean that there might not be an extremist in one of these communities, very well but could the be. Best way to get it out is to love the community, love everyone that's loving, and let them expose their own people or problems. Yes, not fearmonger and create a ton of. Nobody, it's going to work. It's going to work the same way Trump's uh, language has worked. Yes. Aha. And uh, interesting point that the police chief from New York made is he has 900 Muslim police officers, many of which are active duty uh, military as well. They should be under surveillance. We don't know who they are. I mean, are you kidding me? Under the under. I the, get it. We, we right. talked about this before, but you, an extremist Christian, you would never, ever, ever call the skinheads Christians. Go into Christian neighborhoods to find skinheads. Right. You wouldn't do that. But that's all we're saying. Let's go into and Muslim neighborhoods over, to find – Over the summer. The extremists. You have people standing outside mosques in Texas with guns yeah. on the sidewalks, right? Yeah. Are those extremists? It's an extremist action to right. walk around in public right. with a, a very uh, hostile stance. Where yeah. The guys were in body armor. They're wearing – they had their – they're long rifles, they'd call them. I, is that an extreme position? Yes. Are we? Are they under surveillance? I don't know. Maybe. The, Maybe not. Again, it doesn't mean that the that there's not real attacks coming from a certain type of extremist community, but that's not the community. That's an extremist community. Anyway, there's that, also constitutional things involved oh, here. Search and seizure, yeah. and you know. <laughs> And now all of a sudden we're just driving through a supposed Muslim neighborhood yeah. in Minnesota now more. Is that what we're going to do? Just start circling a neighborhood? I mean, come on. Yeah. We got to – you got to fight the problem in, a, in the healthiest way possible and align to our values and our principles. If we let our fear make us turn into people we're not, this – we are in trouble. In trouble. Um, but again – Cruz, everyone has to back now if they want to supposedly stop the Trumpster. Yeah. If the stomp Trump train is on track, I Cruz what, is the guy. But. I wonder what Kasich's going to do because he says he's going to keep going yeah. except he really had his legs pulled out from under him in Utah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what Idaho looked like, but I, but maybe Idaho where if everyone kind of does the anti-Trump stop the Trump train movement, They've got to go with Cruz, supposedly. But now Cruz is stepping in it. Holy cow. I guess there's always Bernie Sanders. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the great grandfather figure. Interesting. Um, what 
what else? What else is going on? Let's go to Terry. Terry, what else is going on around the rest of the world that we need to pay attention to? Of course, the attacks in Brussels. They've arrested. You've seen the photograph. There was the three men yeah. walking through the airport. Two of them are dead. They were brothers. The third that was in a white coat, yeah. maybe a, a white hat, I can't remember exactly, but he was. they were all pushing luggage carts. Something happened. His didn't explode. His didn't explode. He left the, uh, he got out of the building. They're searching for him. Reports in Brussels overnight, but they arrested him. That has turned out to be false. Uh, they, he read, they arrested somebody else, so now that paper's walking some back. Some other guy report. in a tan coat. It was some other guy. So the, but supposedly his bomb was the biggest bomb, and it never went off. There, there, some reports are saying he's the bomb maker. Oh, for this really? cell. And so he's the guy they want to get off the street because, you know, once you take out the person who's making the bombs, maybe it slows down and they don't have yeah. any more. Well, and they don't know if he just, they don't know way. if he ran or if his bomb didn't go off. They don't know what he did. They don't know what happened. Ah. So they're chasing him down. Come on. Get uh, him. So following those, we heard the, the quotes from, from Ted Cruz. He went on Fox News and, and said this. And if I am president, we will defeat radical Islamic terrorism. We need a president who unleashes the full force and fury on ISIS and utterly destroys them. That's the only way to keep us safe. There you go. There you go. And go start driving through Muslim neighborhoods. Muslim neighborhoods. Uh, He also went after Donald Trump for Donald Trump's comments questioning the usefulness of NATO one day before the attacks rocked the city where the multinational military alliance is based. So NATO is also in that city, in Brussels. (laughs) And so uh, Trump was saying, NATO, that that we're involved with that, it's useless. What are we there for? Get out of there. Oh, and then a bomb goes off. And the bomb goes off. So Cruz is saying it's it's good to have allies. Yeah. So we all work together on this. As we talked about, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton won their respective parties' Arizona primary vote Tuesday evening, securing the delegate-rich southwestern state for the two frontrunners. Uh, Clinton defeated Bernie Sanders handily in Arizona, pulling at least 60% of the vote. Trump, meanwhile, outpolled Ted Cruz by 20%. Later in Utah, as we talked about, Ted Cruz won with 69% of the vote. He gets all the delegate yeah. votes because he polled above 50% there. And uh, and he also won in Idaho. So, uh, Bernie Sanders also won in Utah and Idaho, 79% and 78% of the vote in the state of Utah, Idaho. Uh, members of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Columbia. Do you know what they're? Uh, no, they're referred to as FARC. Have you heard of FARC before? Isn't that an art? Isn't that a magazine? No, it's a. Uh, well, it's an online. It's an online feed. No. News feed. FARC is the otherwise. Of, they're seen by the State Department as a terrorist group. Oh boy! <laughs> and they were at that baseball game that President Obama was at in Cuba yesterday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pastor Aleppe, the FARC negotiator, confirmed the members' attendance. Since 1997, the U.S. State Department has designated FARC, the, as, as I said, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, as a foreign terrorist organization. Wow. Obama and his family sat next to Cuban leader Raul Castro during, doing the wave with him and did some ESPN interviews. So, uh, and up in the stands, they had some uh, FARC terrorists. Our, pre- our president was in a stadium with some terrorists. Yeah. And Secret Service missed that. Hmm. I don't know if they missed it, but maybe they didn't. Uh, maybe they weren't wearing their the colors. Yeah. And they, uh, he's off to Argentina ah. for a couple of days for a state visit there. Vive Argentina. I love Argentina. I live there. Do you like blonde jokes? Um, no. Are you, you're, not, you're not a fan of blonde jokes? 
But there's that stereotype, right? It sounds right? like the kind of joke Ben would tell. Yeah, I, I have people. a couple blonde jokes. No, 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 too. Ben, Ben, no, Ben. No, 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 no. Researchers at Ohio, at Ohio State analyzed 10,878 Americans who took part in a longitudinal survey okay. from 1979 coming forward. Yep. It would survey those between the ages of 14 and 21 in that year. In 1980, participants took an IQ test. Five years later, they asked what their natural hair color color was. Researchers analyzing the data found that blonde men and women alike mm-hmm. aren't less intelligent than those with other hair colors and, in fact, may be smarter. Wow. Though the percentages difference isn't statistically yeah. significant. So what they're saying is you can't say with certainty that blondes are smarter than others, but you definitely cannot say oh, that they're any dumber. That is so good to know. In fact, they're saying the uh, the IQs are fairly high for women. Have an a- blonde woman I- average IQ is a one hundred three. What's a good IQ? I have no idea. No one, idea. I don't know. Yeah, compared to one hundred two for those with brown hair, one hundred one for those with red hair, one hundred with those with black hair. That's the average IQ. So it goes down. So the highest, the higher IQ on average is yeah. the blondes, and results are similar for men. So what if they're fake blondes? That's different. Okay. Totally different. Those are chemicals leaching into the brain, yeah. and they might cause intelligence issues. What if, what if the person has no Allegedly. Hair? Is a person that's hairless, do they have? Ooh. I think if you're bald, it might, like, release yeah. more. Maybe you have more inner cranial flow. heat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll, you'll allow... leak some of your intelligence. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll have to ask some of our friends. We may know a bald person. We may. Hmm. <sighs> Good stuff. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, uh, Andrian Berard will be joining us talking about her article, Nothing Snowballs Online Like Fear, Fear-Mongering, folks. We're going to find out why it's so contagious, why we jump on to any scary headline and uh, just stay on. Stick with us, folks, helping you understand what's going on in your world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, nowhere is information circulated more than on the Internet, and nothing spreads faster than fear. Ironically, it's as if fear brings people together. Tweets are circulated, articles are shared, and news coverage multiplies because stress and fear are contagious. Uh, From a health crisis like the Ebola virus, do you remember that? Uh, ISIS threats and worries about the economy, and most recently the bombing in Brussels. Our media is driven by fear. Why are we so easily influenced by fear, and what are the consequences of such fear-motivated media? Joining us today is is Andrian uh, uh, Berard. Writer in residence at Delta State University, she uh, is also the author of a recent article, "Nothing Snowballs Online Like Fear: How Online Fear Feeds Political Smear Campaigns, Stock Market Rumors, and ISIS Propaganda." We're so excited to have her on the phone with us again, uh, Andrian Berard. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Are you there, Adrian? Okay, we're going to keep trying to get her on the line. She's We're Skyping her in. And so it's an interesting uh, article that she brings up. One of the most, I think, interesting things about it is you all remember. Think back to uh, the Ebola virus. Do you remember? And do you remember a doctor from the United States had contracted the Ebola virus, and we were terrified about the idea of him coming back to the United States 
with the virus. Do you remember the nurse that had Ebola? And all of a sudden that we couldn't find a way. Uh, remember, she she didn't have the virus when she got here, but they kept her contained in her home. And remember all of that fear mongering going on. Do you remember watching uh, in certain hospitals where, like in Dallas, there was another outbreak where a man had the Ebola virus? And do you remember we even turned on uh, CNN, any national channel, and we could watch the ambulance driving this person to the hospital to be quarantined in, in different places? So it fear. It creates an incredible, incredible um, uh, contagion effect. And all of a sudden— we thought for sure we knew that uh, Ebola was going to spread all throughout the country. Do you remember also we were talking about other policies, closing the borders, not allowing people into the country for, that have been from other countries? And do you remember um, the fear-mongering that happened there? It's contagious, and it doesn't go away. It's not like all of a sudden we're just going to, you know, just not have fear. But it also uh, – it's an important thing, especially as we think about the political candidates this year. It might be scary if all of a sudden a candidate says to themselves, hey, I'm maybe I just use more fear to spread my message. You know? I just become a fear monger. Democrats are always saying Republicans are fear mongers. How much truth is truth and how much truth needs to be shared – Again, our guest is Adrian um, uh, Beard, and she is Adrian Berard, and she is the um, the uh, author of this article. Nothing snowballs online like fear. How online fear feeds political smear campaigns, and we're honored to have her on the phone. Adrian, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Great to have you. And this this article, I I, I mean, I know you're a you're an incredible writer. I've I've been looking at all the awards you're winning all over for your writing. This seems like a really interesting subject. How did you choose to write about this topic? You know, I think it starts as any journalist. They're just aware of their own ignorance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what it was that was happening when I was reading content online and sharing it. I wanted to know my own physiology to understand what is it that makes me, one, afraid of what I see online and compels me to share fearful information online. Because, you know, if I look at my news feed or my friend's news feed, especially right now, right after what just happened yeah. in Brussels, it's just chock full of really sort of horrifying images, a lot of scary commentary. So where does that come from in our biology that makes us compelled to share terrifying information. I mean, especially I'm and I'm glad as a journalist you're doing this because there there also is a there's a media side to this, right? Because journalism, I mean, media sells better, too, if there's probably a fear component to it. Exactly. And it's actually not just media, right? I mean, we're culpable. Right. Yeah. But um, also in terms of advertising, if you notice now, um, You'll see a switch where before, maybe you look a decade, and it was sort of the happy Budweiser frog, funny joke. You fast forward now, and you have things like the puppy monkey baby. <laughs> and it's all of these sort of fearful, strange images that 
advertisers are putting out there. Why? Because they go viral. And studies have shown this, though. Two years ago, the Wharton School of Business released a study which basically had the recipe for, for virality in it. And the researchers there said everything that we see that is going viral is a product of information that induces anxiety, so hmm. something that stresses you out. And if you want that, you know, they use the case of a BMW ad campaign that was called The Hire. And basically, they blew the cars up. They kidnapped people. They did everything you're not supposed to do in advertising, which is make the brand look bad. Oh, wow. And it turns out they had millions of views within a month. They were up to 11 million views. So clearly, you know, all the old rules that used to apply don't anymore. Yeah, isn't that's true. Like when you go watch stuff online it it might be you know people doing dangerous kind of x gameish type of activities or kids you know doing stupid things on skateboards and it, it does it, it stresses you out so in a weird way i guess there's a there's a natural uh, i guess evolutionary reason for this fear talk about what you learned about what drives just the human nature to be so attracted to the fear issue Right. So what we're talking about when we talk about fear, I should just say that that's a evolutionarily that's an ancient part of our body in terms of our emotions. Right. That's processed. Fear is processed in the oldest part of our brain. Right. So when we talk about joy or sorrow, that's processed in the part of our brain. It's a little bit newer. It's the neocortex of our brain, which deals with rewards. And we have stories for those. Let's say I got a promotion. I feel happy about it. The story I tell myself is I worked hard to get that promotion. Well, the fear region doesn't have any of that narrative part. We, it starts acting before we know what's happening. Um, so just hypothetically, you're walking in the woods. You see something on the ground. It's dark. It looks a little wet. It's long. You freeze because your brain is telling you it's a snake before your mind says, actually, hmm. that's just a stick. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's kept us alive, right? You think about it. You want to react to that lion before you can process that. It's a lion coming at Yeah, you want that extra step. Exactly. (laughs) So it makes sense biologically in terms of our own survival as a species why fear would have that unique place in our brain and our bodies. Also, we share fear in a way that's unique, right? So not only do I react when I see a lion coming, my body automatically responds. But the same thing happens when I see someone else seeing a lion coming at them. Mm. It would make sense that I would respond to that as well. The only problem is now our bodies go through the exact same process as here comes a lion, better run, when we're sitting in a traffic jam or there's a line at the bank or, you know, we're getting on Twitter and seeing that there's been, you know, an attack on Brussels. So... This evolutionary ancient part of us that kept us alive for the entire legacy of mankind is now sort of working against us because we can't differentiate, physiologically speaking, between a lion attacking us and, you know, a traffic jam on the interstate. Well, and that that, that mirroring process, that those mirror neurons. So if I'm watching the, the, the people panicking and running from the bombing in Brussels, my brain is going to mirror in the same 
chemical and even create, I guess, the same chemical equation or a similar one as those are those people are experiencing. So it actually becomes it's like it's like real TV. I mean, this is I'm experiencing what they're experiencing. And I guess that is the attraction to why people keep pulling it up and then forwarding it on, huh? Exactly. I mean, we're a social species, so mirror neurons were discovered in monkeys, right? But yeah. they, they were found by accident, right? So this neuron was firing when a monkey was holding a banana, but it was also firing when that monkey saw another monkey holding a banana. Right. And the researchers were saying, well, what's going on? This can't be right. He's not touching a banana. But sure enough, it's the part of our body that sees somebody experiencing or doing something that responds. And it works with movement, right, the parts of our brain that tell us, you know, what to lift things. But it also works with emotion, so we can feel empathy, which is key, again, as a social species. We need to understand what someone is experiencing. The problem is now, um, with technology the way it is, right, it's evolved so much quicker than our own biology. So we can see someone on a screen experiencing a terrorizing event, and we empathize with that because our biology tells us to. Those mirror neurons are firing just as if we were experiencing that terror ourselves. Mm. And, and this has happened over and over. You gave great examples of like the Ebola virus. And I was talking about it, I think, before you got on the air that, I mean, do you remember watching them bringing these doctors that – had been contaminated or had been infected with the Ebola virus and they were in their full body suits and in the back of an ambulance and all the news stations were covering it. And we were thinking, oh, here we go. Ebola, Ebola all over the United States. It's going to spread. We're all going to die. And um, but it, so it almost doesn't matter how real the threat is, is it? I mean, because our body is just going to create the reaction. Exactly. So that was interesting. So one of the, the researchers that I profile, mostly I talk about his work in the piece. So his name's Emilio Ferrara. He's out of USC. And he was looking at the Ebola virus and is now starting to look at the Zika virus, which he looks at information diffusion. So how does information travel? And then how do we make sense of that information? And how do we verify whether it's accurate or not? Hmm. And so he looked at the Ebola virus and he said, well, why is it that people believe this is a threat when, you know, a Gallup poll that was released in November of 2014, after there had only been, I think, six confirmed cases in the United States, Americans listed Ebola as their top three healthcare concern, right? So the first one, I think, was access, next was affordability, the third was Ebola. Wow. You know, only six people in the country had yeah. the, the virus, but it, for some reason it was this overhyped threat and everybody believed it. Well, that's, that's, again, bringing back in the biology, right? I mean, it's a mechanism in our brain that we're supposed to respond to these threats as if they were real before we can interpret whether they're real or not. And that's the unique thing about fear, you know, sorrow and joy. You know, other emotions don't function that way. Mm -hmm. They go through a different chain of command in the brain, but fear really gets right at the root, right at the most ancient part of ourselves, and that's what we're acting from. Um, so I guess you could say it's irrational, right, that it doesn't reach the rational part of our brain. Um, that is so true, though. I mean, again, it's, yeah, not, it's not about accuracy, is it? It's about movement. Get going. Get out of here. Yeah. Get running. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's a big deal. And so, because that was one of the things you called it, um, or I guess was that his research where they then found that people were then promoting and and sending out all of these kind of fear rich tweets about about Ebola, and right. and that, that started the spreading. Exactly. So he looked at he basically tracked Ebola exactly as you would track a virus itself. He looked for patient zeros. And often that was news organizations. Um, CNN and Fox News were the two main culprits that he found, but there were others as well. And then he looked at, like, if, if a tweet from a news organization is a stone and you drop it in a pond, he looked at all the waves and how far out they went. And so he traced everything back to these patient zeros, but then he looked at it, how big of an expanse does this create? And he found through his research that fear-rich tweets travel, they create bigger waves and they travel faster than any other type of emotion that's embedded in a, in a tweet or in, in information sent out online, mm. um, which had not been looked at in the same way before. And he's actually still working on publishing a piece that links in the Zika virus as well. But he's he wants news organizations, one, and then groups like the World Health Organization to keep in mind that when they send out this information, it's going to go viral quickly because there's fear attached to the information they're sending out. So how do we tell people about an outbreak of a virus without creating an outbreak of hysteria? That's right. And he's developing algorithms now to determine precise ways that we can do that so that we don't have, you know, exactly what happened with Ebola, where it's just a threat that is not as big as people believe it is, and they're experiencing stress, they're experiencing hysterica, hysteria mm. for really no no reason. Yeah, uh, Adrian, let's let's hang on a sec. We'll come back and continue this discussion. Man, incredible! Especially now, it's one thing when the health department's trying to give information out, but boy, how could you manipulate the the tweets if you know fear spreads and you want to spread your message because you're a political candidate? Wow, let's just really, you know, create some fear. Um, Interesting uh, learning we're having here. Stick with us, folks. We'll come back more with uh, the journalist Adrian Adrian Berard, who is the author of um, this book, Nothing, or this article, Nothing Snowballs Online Like Fear. Stick with us, folks, helping you uh, learn what you need to learn to kind of sort through life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Everybody to the Matt Townsend Show. We are on the line right now uh, with uh, Adrian Berard, who is the uh, a journalist and author of an article, Nothing Snowballs Online Like Fear. And uh, she's been talking to us about why fear is so contagious. It really, it's the uh, online fear that feeds political smear campaigns, stock market rumors, ISIS propaganda, everything, folks. And uh, she's also discussing the media's role in all of this as well. Um, Adrian, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Thanks, Matt. Good to have you. And again, you are also a writer in residence at Delta State University, and you graduated with your graduate uh, with a graduate degree from the School of Journalism at Columbia University. You've been a busy young lady. I've been pretty busy these past few years. <laughs> I know, but I love I love reading what you've been writing too. Because, I mean, this is an issue that now we're even seeing in the political uh, debate, and it, we even heard just very quickly Ted Cruz came right out right after the Brussels uh, bombings, and um, now he's you know saying we need to go into communities of with Muslim where Muslims are living and police them and. Uh, start spreading the fear, I guess. Yeah, and I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, um, I think, I, so I live in Mississippi, right, that's where I'm the writer in Mississippi. Yeah. And, um, but I grew up in the Northeast, and I think when people talk about Mississippi, they say, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of ignorance, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think or, or when we're talking about this, right, that people are not actually coming from a place of ignorance when they respond this way. So... You know, for instance, right, we have what happened in Brussels yesterday, and I'm hearing responses here in Mississippi that people genuinely are afraid of a terrorist attack here in yeah. their hometown. And that's not coming from a place of ignorance necessarily, right? That's actually biologically we're, predis- we're predisposed to react to a threat like that as assuming it will happen to us. So, right. um there's a way in which politicians can prey on that. Whether they know it or not, they seem to have discovered the recipe for virality in this age where, you know, Ted Cruz can tweet something like that out and it can be shared, you know, hundreds of thousands of times in a matter of minutes. Um, when we have to understand our own biology in terms of what role fear plays in order to understand why this phenomenon happens. Hmm. I, I don't want to give... <laughs> too much credit really to anyone because we're all in the same boat. We all have the same region of our brain called the amygdala that reacts to fear the same way. It's totally irrational. It hijacks the rest of our body. It hijacks even our own rational mind. So right. we're reacting to these things in a way that's totally irrational, but at the same time, biologically, that's what we're supposed to be uh-huh. doing. And, and, it feels, and it feels right because I've always – when I work with my clients, I teach them that that fight or flight, that amygdala reaction, it's – you're supposed to have confidence. Even if you're wrong, be confident and do what your body's like telling you to do, which would be protect yourself. The problem is if you just think a little bit longer about it, you could move that same emotion to the higher brain, I call it, or the, the neocortex, the prefrontal cortex, and turn it into something else. Right. We could actually right. learn and sit there. And yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean you don't still feel the feeling, but gather more data. Like how many terrorist threats are there in parts of Mississippi? Yes, exactly. The thing is that that neocortex actually is the last step in the process. Yeah. So every other part of ourselves and we can even in the amount of time it takes to write a tweet, the neocortex doesn't even have to be activated. Right. Yet. You can write a tweet from your amygdala. Exactly. It's your amygdala that's creating all of these responses and reactions. And, I mean, you think about it, retweeting takes a fraction of a second. So I see Ted Cruz put something like this out. I think, yes, this attack can come to me. I retweet it, and then my friends retweet it, 
And before you know it, you have this cascade of fear that's actually determining, you know, a political stance and promoting a political candidate. And everybody in the whole process is reacting from their amygdala, which is not the rational part of their mind, because fear works sort of the opposite way of other emotions. It mm. starts at the at the reactionary part first and then works its way up to the part yeah. that can make sense of it. Well, and that's also, I mean, just to get a little maniacal and devilish here, that's also assuming Ted Cruz just, you know, threw, popped that out himself. That also could have been a major uh, rewrite, 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 re-sculpting from his media team, his social media team, an hour spend on it, an hour reading it, preparing it, and then sending it out, which would make it a manipulation of people's fear tend- tendency. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know who's read what. You know, there are plenty of studies out there that show exactly, you know, how social media and fear interact. Yeah. Um, And, you know, were I a political operative right now, yes, I would be reading all of these studies coming out because it will tell you a lot about how people react online, especially how they react to threats online um, and fear laden what's called fear-laden information, fear-laden tweets, fear-laden mm. uh, social media. Well, what do you suggest – oh, we've only got a few more minutes – but what do you suggest we do as just the average reader of the media, of news, of information? What, what would you just suggest we be doing so we don't immediately catch the fear wave? Well, part of it is being aware of your own biology, right? So you understand, okay, this is the fear mechanism kicking in. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but there's only so much of that you can do because you actually don't have control over that. Mm-hmm. So I think what it really takes is time. You know, I would say rather than being reactionary to news events or to, you know, political campaigns, I would say just wait for that fear response to go all the way through your body. Take deep breaths, you know, take about four or five minutes and let that rational part of your brain come in because if you're reacting immediately to these things what you're doing is shortchanging yourself you're not allowing your neocortex to actually process the information that you're about to disseminate yeah no that's great that's great advice and and i mean be a consumer too i mean you also could turn it off if it's overwhelming you turn off some of this uh media coverage and because it, it was so easy to just get sucked in after every major disaster or tragedy or bombing um to just watch hours on end and that will just feed that that amygdala exactly yeah you can just walk away from it you know yeah. and you will it's not like you're going to fall out of touch with the world but i think especially when it comes to fear and stress that can really build up take a real toll on your body so just to walk away from it, you know, turn the television off, get off the social media for a little while, and you can feel your body goes from a stressful state. You can feel that relief yeah. even after just a short period of turning all of this off. It's great stuff. Uh, Adrian Berard, Bar- uh, we ca- we had your name wrong, Adrian, so I've called you everything under the sun. <laughs> hey, yeah, Adrian, okay, <laughs> d- didn't you just, didn't you, though, just release a book? I'll have a book coming out in October. Okay. Um, it's called Water Tossing Boulders, How a Family of Chinese Immigrants Led the First Fight to Desegregate Schools in the South. Oh, neat. Oh, neat. Okay. Is that why you're yeah. in the South then? That's why I'm in the South, researching the book. Good stuff. Well, we appreciate you, Adrian. Keep up the great work. 
Okay. Take care, Matt. Thank you. Be good. Uh, interesting stuff. You know what, folks? You are the captain, right? You're the captain of your soul. Let's start leading this thing. Um, we don't have to just chase the media. Sometimes we can lead it. Sometimes we could ignore it. The feelings are natural. The reaction's natural. The response, up to you. The response to what you're feeling, totally up to you. And I think that's what separates us, right, from humans and maybe the rest of the animal kingdom is we're going to create a space and make a better choice. Stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back wrapping up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, here you go. The story for you now to uh, manage your fear on. Okay, so imagine you are a customer at a Minnesota gas station, and uh, all of a sudden this, this semi-truck drives up onto a curb and into a tree. Okay? By the way, your fight or flight would kick in. You would be thinking, save the baby. <laughs> save the baby. And you're, you're freaking out. You can't believe what's going on. You look inside the truck, and uh, up pops the cute little head of a golden Labrador retriever. Apparently, the truck had been idling and it was put into gear somehow, because I don't know how that dog pushed in the clutch and then put it into gear. That's a hard thing for a dog to do. Maybe they don't have clutches anymore. I bet they don't. Somehow the idling truck was put into gear and then went through a parking lot across the street and over a curb. A passerby discovered the dog sitting in the driver's seat when he jumped in to stop the truck. Uh, David Stagora was at the store when he heard the truck smash into a tree in a parked car. He couldn't see the driver but saw the dog climb up (laughs) near the driver's side. Police say the truck was taken off the road. And the driver had left the unoccupied truck running in a nearby parking lot. I'm telling you. So this guy jumps in, and instead of freaking out, he jumps in and saves the day. And a cute little Labrador. Maybe it was on the way. Maybe it could have kept going. Maybe gone to a schoolyard of kids. And this Labrador would then be, you know, tomorrow's news of Labrador runs over an entire school of kids. We all have these fight-or-flight moments in our life, right? And uh, a great point that Adrian made earlier, when we have the fight-or-flight moment, one thing to just be clear of, it doesn't usually mean it's an accurate piece of information. It just is something that you need to act on. So it's actionable, not accurate, which is why you have such an immediate need to do something or move or run or fight. And uh, what we might want to do whenever we can is uh, avoid any immediate danger and instead then just take a step aside and allow your brain to catch up with you and gather more data. It's just a dog. He means no harm. He's not going to hound us. I'm not sure about that. No pun intended. Ben, don't make me go there. We'll take a break, folks. This is our number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Two more hours, more ideas, more tools to help you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Doing what we can on the show to help you get the information you need. You know, we're not going to give you all of the information you need. Just some of the information you need to live a healthier, happier life. We'll also give you our take on the news, which is usually completely accurate. It's just a well, view. In, in reality, hmm? our information is only 5% correct. What, what do you mean by that? What, what do you mean by that? We, we have like a 5% correctness coefficient. What's he talking about? What? He says our, our information that we give is only 5% accurate. That could be true. Wow. See? I you're, mean, no you're one, the producer of the show. No one's done a, an actual study. Well, yeah. To verify. No. This is, I think, the problem. Hmm. You two don't have a clue <laughs> how accurate this information is. Well, neither does anybody else. So I could make a statement and – that's my opinion and viewpoint mm-hmm. at this moment. I could change my mind. Mm-hmm. Allegedly, we're only 5% accurate. Allegedly, I would say we are nearly 90% accurate. Mm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even say allegedly. I would say factually. Nine out of ten things we say. So now you're taking a very firm position on this. Mm-hmm. Something that could come back to haunt you. If you say allegedly, they can't touch you. The man cannot touch you. Have you been reading the Trump media handbook? I have. It's brilliant. Did you hear the last thing he brought up right last night before the election? What was that? The caucuses. Um, He made a comment that – what was the exact phrase? I had to go find it. Uh, Don't make me – don't make me tell the secret kind of thing about uh, Cruz's wife. Did you hear that? Let me read it since it was going to be in the news. Okay. That's why we're here. That was the news report. Good. Matt just bloated up. Donald Trump threatened to spill the beans on Ted Cruz's wife in the tweet he quickly deleted and reposted Tuesday night. Trump was apparently referring to a Facebook ad from an anti-Trump super PAC mocking his wife's nude appearance in a GQ magazine spread years ago. Said Lion Ted Cruz just used a picture of, is it Melania? Yeah. From a GQ shoot uh, in this ad, be careful, Lion Ted, or I'll spill the beans on your wife, he wrote. And so it was revealed that the GOP frontrunner deleted the original tweet, not because of shame, but because he wanted to add Lion Ted to the threatening message. It just said Ted before. Hmm. He wanted Lion Ted because that's really the yeah. label he's trying to put on Ted Cruz. And you got to stay with your messaging. <laughs> if I've learned anything from politics, it's about messaging and consistency with the message. Yeah. S- stay on Stay on message little marco yeah what was jeb jeb was uh Uh, tired tired unenergetic low energy low low energy energy, that's what it was yeah less than an hour later senator ted cruz responded pick up your wife not from us donald if you try to attack heidi you're more of a coward than i thought yes hashtag classless see see now watch this is have you seen the ad with donald trump's wife no i don't look at stuff like that it was just on facebook oh or uh, and then because of that, and I mean, you say that, but it's not like everyone sees the same thing on Facebook. But right. I saw it in several media posts later. I was like, oh! And the whole point was, 
Arizona, Utah, Idaho. There's, oh, yeah. there's Mormons. Very conservative. A very conservative. And so do you want – and it said something to the fact of do you want this to be your first lady? And there she is on oh, a bearskin rug or something. Right. I mean nothing salacious. It's yeah. more of like a Sports Illustrated swimsuit right. issue type stuff. So, I mean it's – But see, again, this gets back to what we talked about last hour that a little fear-mongering like, ooh, so uh, Cruz's uh, wife has something that – that Donald knows about, and all of a sudden the intrigue goes up, supposedly. Yeah. But this and this just, was right before last night. This was right before people would go caucus. This just goes to the high level of decorum mm-hmm. that is this year's presidential race. This is also why I'm amazed that you read his media handbook as deeply as you do no, and you, keep using you the word allegedly. You don't have to read. You just simply watch what he does. Yeah. Watch a debate or two, and you find out that if you toss in the word allegedly, <laughs> or in his in his vernacular, I'm not saying it. other people are saying this. I'm just yeah. saying what they're saying. It's not me. Don't make me spill the beans. Right. But you would be mad too if all of a sudden a pack is beating up on your wife. Yes. And then Ted's like, "Well, don't beat up on my wife." I think this is why we need the wives to beat up on each other. Hmm. So a wife debate? No. Let's not do that. No? I mean, there's a vice presidential debate. No, you know who would kill in that, by the way? Who's that? Bill Clinton. Spouses. I heard someone say, yeah, absolutely. He I heard someone say yesterday, if Hillary Clinton gets into the office, mm-hmm. gets elected, it's a two-for-one deal. That, well, he says that. Because Bill's already coming in with her. Right. And so is he going to have influence in the presidency? Oh, oh for sure. Of course. It's the, yeah. the spouse. They always do. That, which is one of the supposed advantages. But it's an advantage, interestingly, she hasn't been playing up. Mm. And you may, it makes you wonder, why? Why isn't she playing up the Bill Clinton advantage? Because last time she did, Trump she brought up a trouble. bunch of other stuff that she just want to have brought up. But he really would be a great advantage. I mean, that's that's got to be a weird thing to be but, the past president in the White House. But even as maybe like a, an emissary. Mm-hmm. Just to go oh, out yeah. and can you go meet with this leader? And you have yeah. this advantage over anybody else that he could just be just like a, a the second vice president right. maybe to go out and do. But then people get mad because he's not elected. So what's he doing? And mm. but they send vice presidents as well. They'll send they'll send first ladies to countries all the time. Right. Yeah. No. This would be the first man, the senior vice vice, man full of vice, man full of vice. <laughs> Hypothetically. Allegedly. I'm not saying anything, I but just keep your mouth man. <laughs> but, but honestly, he would be fantastic in doing – can you imagine what – well, I guess that's the Clinton Foundation. He could well, – he'd have to get rid of the Clinton Foundation and maybe just run it as the first man. Well, that would first, be – What do they call him? Yeah, the I don't first know. first man. There would have to be a new designation. Yeah. But I think would they turn the Clinton Foundation over to Chelsea? Oh, for sure. And those two just step away and they deal yeah. with with being in that the White House. Just, that's going to get gummed it's, up. Yeah, someone needs to get into the Clinton Foundation. Yeah, because and you, do you think Trump and his campaign have started digging into that to try to you know they oh, do the I'm opposition sure. research? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And he, they don't need to dig because Donald will just allege. You know, all they, there's already there's all sorts of rumors, and there's and already things. two or three reports from other journalists that all they'll do is just play off of that. Yeah, it doesn't seem like Donald does a lot of pre-planning of his no. attacks. No, <laughs> they're really <laughs> off the cuff, which makes it entertaining to see exactly where he's going to go with whatever oh, yeah. he sort of dreams up at the moment. Did you hear this? Seven Eleven has debuted a new Slurpee donut. I have. Hallelujah, hallelujah. 
7-Eleven is known for its frozen Slurpee drinks, like the cherry-flavored mm, brain freeze. Ah, oh, those are the best. Brain I, freezes? I love it when my brain freezes. <laughs> and you have like that two seconds of incredible pain. It's totally worth it, though. Oh, totally. The sugary sweetness Now of the nothing. chain has a signature treat that has uh, taken on a new form. It's called the Wild Cherry Slurpee Donut. Mm. We know, you know, we, we know, we know donuts do not – this doesn't make sense. Uh, the cake donut is topped with wild cherry-flavored icing and pink sugar crystals. Mm. And features a pink inside with cherry pieces. So they're just playing on their branding, really. Yes. But it's a cake donut all cherried up. Now, this, mm. this is a week after they had they celebrated mm. the 50th anniversary of the Slurpee. Mm-hmm. And there's all these photos online. They said, bring whatever you want to fill up for $1.50. Yeah, yeah, my kids are like. And so people are bringing like fish aquariums. They're yeah. bringing like Dad, baseball we, hats, all kinds of the, stuff. Can we have the. They, that's what they wanted. My kid wanted like a 50-gallon bucket. Right. And you I'm, go, like, this, I'm pretty sure they won't let you fill that up, son. The, probably. But they would. I mean – Would they? My, my I was showing my wife the photos and people just had just ridiculous containers of all kinds they're filling up. And the problem is you walk in with a 50-gallon whatever and the person behind the counter is like, oh, I got to go fill up the Slurpee machine again? Yeah. You people. All day long. Just grab a cup. Someone walked in with like a, a KFC chicken bucket. And <laughs> put a straw in it, and that's what they walked out of the store with. <laughs> People have too much time. Yes, and it's it's Ben. It's Ben. It's Ben's generation. They're going to ruin Ben's... everything. Yeah. When in doubt, just I it on ben. I will not apologize for any of this. What did you take to fill up at the Seven Eleven? Um, I'm not going to disclose that. He took a bag. He did a plastic bag. It it's got really, really sticky. Yeah. And they're hard to carry, aren't they? Yeah. When they're full, like a big garbage bag. It starts bag. dripping. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's why you're on a bike, pal. That's why you're on a bike. That it was work. really hard to ride on a bike. It starts rubbing against the wheel. Yeah. Gosh. That's a mess. Um, crazy, crazy story. So anyway, get to 7-Eleven and get your Slurpee donut. I just like to get a donut and just dip it in my Slurpee. Mm. Mm. No. Uh, just right now, a little Slurpee, a little donut. That that donut could probably kill you. Breakfast made of So much sugar. Oh, yeah. It would probably give you a brain freeze, too, because it might be cold. No. But it no? would give you – yeah, but your system would shut down. <laughs> That's your it. blood would coagulate. Hey, what, uh, what's going on in the headlines, Terry? Anything we need to worry about? Thanks, Matt. Four Americans, including a pair of siblings from New York and a couple from Kentucky and Tennessee, respectively, are missing – after the coordinated bombings in Brussels on Tuesday, siblings Sasha and Alexander Pankowski reportedly called their family from the Brussels airport on Tuesday, but there was an explosion and then the line went dead. Family members have posted on Facebook that they haven't heard from them since. Stephanie Schultz and her husband Justin live in Brussels and were last seen in the departure area of the airport. Justin, a Tennessee native, and Stephanie from Kentucky moved to the city in 2014. So far, at least eight Americans have been declared injured in the attacks, including a U.S. service member and four of his family members, in addition to three Mormon missionaries. Wow. Can so, you imagine talking to your kid or and then the bomb goes off? So, oh. but initially chaos and then trying to figure out how to get back to a phone line. Uh, a lot of the transportation has gotten back to normal. The airport is closed in Brussels, but I believe the subway 
is back operating this morning. Donald Trump on Tuesday speculated that harsh interrogation techniques, including torture, could have helped prevent the terrorist attacks in Brussels on Tuesday that killed at least 31 and wounded hundreds more. I don't believe they do. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I think they're told to say that politically. I think that they believe in it 100%. You talk to General Patton from years ago. You talk to General uh, Douglas MacArthur. Uh, I will guarantee you these were real generals, and I guarantee you they would be laughing. Well, right now they're crying, and right now they're spinning in their graves as they watch this stupidity go on. Hmm. He was asked, uh, do you, he, he, Trump, Donald Trump believes the military would support terror. Uh, or, yeah, terror uh, uh, tactics uh, above and beyond. Harsh interrogation yeah. techniques up to and including torture. Uh, the person on CNN interviewing, I think it was Wolf Blitzer, said, he goes, but the military said that's outside the code of conduct. We're not going to do that. Right. And Donald Trump said, he goes, I think rank and file members of the military are all for torture. And that's why he started mentioning MacArthur right. and you know generals that have long but passed. He, and he asked, he said, if you ask Patton, who we can't ask because he's passed, and yep. MacArthur, who we can't ask because he's passed, right. he hasn't asked him either. No. So, but but how, he assumes they would be for torture. But you, you, you can't. I would assume Christ would be against it. I, I would also, I mean, if you ask Christ, I'd say he'd say no. If you ask Gandhi, hmm. I'd say he'd say no. Uh, Ga- Gandhi's say, on the fence. If you ask Buddha, I, I think he'd say no. Yes. Holy cow. Yeah, that was the Not his to go. justification. Not for to the go off there. Trump also backed Cruz's, Ted Cruz's proposal on Tuesday to patrol Muslim neighborhoods as a new security measure. Okay. Just so he's on record. He's with Ted. <laughs> on that one western a unity ticket <laughs> on torture <laughs> and uh what uh, unusual surveillance technique yeah western tuesday or super tuesday the fourth whichever way you want to call it donald trump hillary clinton win in arizona ted cruz and bernie sanders win in utah and idaho mm. crazy US, the u.s supreme court hit its first deadlocked opinion since justice antoline scalia's death tuesday splitting 4-4 on a missouri case over whether two wives could be held responsible for their husband's failed real estate endeavors under a federal equal credit law the split opinion means that while the lower court ruling will be upheld a nationwide precedent will not be set hmm. so the case you know here next there. but it's the point of when it's a 4-4 nothing nothing gets decided. happens it's as if it was a loss are you interested in living longer? It depends. Okay. Will there be 7-Eleven Slurpee Donuts? Probably. Excellent. Yes, I do. So it says a new study finds a Japanese diet of fish, rice, seaweed, and sake could add years to your life. Not hmm. only does following Japanese dietary guidelines, which highlight grains, vegetables, fish, meats, milk, and fruits, result in a 15% lower mortality rate, but it also lowers one's risk of dying from cardiovascular disease and stroke, according to a study in the British Medical Journal. So washing it down with fire water <laughs> also helps? It's, I, it, that it's, was, that's it's, included, but that's not included in the study. Because it's made from a grain, I'm assuming. Probably. Right. But there's, so there's a balanced consumption of energy, grains, vegetables, fruits, meats, eggs, soy products, dairy products, confectionaries, and alcoholic beverages can contribute to longevity by decreasing the risk of death, says the study. Hmm. So Interesting. Uh, interesting. Another great point is... Uh, don't eat donuts from what Slurpee donuts at Seven Eleven. They're they're not included in the study. But the Slurpee would be fine to eat, would it? It's just pretty much sugar. Mm-hmm. No, and no, that's it. You're water. done. You're done. It's sugar. I mean, yeah, I think even the water gets overpowered by the sugar at some point. But we know they're healthy because they're made out of fruit, like cherry and grape. Yeah, I mean, cherry <laughs> is on a tree. 
Right, but that's that probably no cherry whatsoever was used in the making of that Slurpee. No, there was because I it, on the Slurpee sign, okay. there's a cherry. So that, they couldn't advertise a cherry if it wasn't a cherry. You're right, Matt. They're healthy. I think that's great analysis. Thank you. I'm here to serve. Here to do what I can to help us all live longer or at least have a brain freeze, freeze on the way out. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about introverted teachers. Are you an introvert? who by the end of the day, you are done dealing with people. Well, what if you're a school teacher? And, uh, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard job. If, you, if you're an introvert, when do you get your break? We'll be talking about introverts, extroverts, and how one person has learned to manage it. We'll be talking about the introverted teacher. I think it will give you great insight into how you can manage your life if you are an introvert as well. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Dancing with myself Oh, well, there's nothing to lose And there's nothing to prove And I'll be dancing with myself If I looked all over the world And there's every Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, you know, let's imagine that you are an introvert. You tend to recharge better alone, and, and uh, large groups can be draining for you. Not that you don't like people. You just need to be left alone sometimes. Now let's also pretend that you are a teacher. You interact with kids every day, parents every day, other teachers all day long, and you are always needing to be on, always performing and expending energy. And then when you're done with the kids for the day, there are more meetings with parents and teachers. Does that sound a bit exhausting to you? Well, our guest today is Jessica Onard. She is the author of the book, Introversion in the Classroom, and she joins us now live from Ohio to talk about how to prevent burnout and encourage success for introverts in the classroom. Jessica, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. It's good to be here. Good to have you on the show. Now, uh, Jessica, are you an introvert then? Oh, yes, definitely. I'm very much introverted. And talk to us. So give us the definition, because some people think, you know, that just means maybe you don't like people or, you know, you're antisocial. But explain introversion versus extroversion. Yeah, and I think the first thing that's kind of important to note is it isn't a black and white thing. You're not either an introvert or an extrovert, and that's it. It all falls on a spectrum. So essentially what it's talking about is energy and where you get your energy from, where you spend it. So as an introvert, I tend to get my energy from more isolated environments, from time to myself or maybe with one person where I can spend a lot of time thinking internally. An extrovert, on the other hand, may get more energy from social situations, being in groups and collaborations and whatnot. But since it falls on a spectrum, you know, sometimes people can have introverted tendencies, but be extroverts or vice versa. Right. So it's not quite as black and white as you might think. I, in fact, I've now heard him calling them ambiverts, where they're mm-hmm. they're both. And I'm I'm in a weird situation, too, because I have the radio show and then I, I do a lot of public speaking and I see clients every day. So but I actually feel like I'm more of an introvert. I get energy being alone and kind mm-hmm. of like being in my office, shutting my door. That's how I kind of recharge. Uh, but I, I end up loving the extroverted side of me. So, you know, yeah, like you're saying, it's a we might be a bit of everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I always tell people I love public speaking. It's one of my favorite things to do. 
Uh, and the only difference between me public speaking and an extrovert public speaking is the extrovert will continue to want to be out and be social afterwards. And mm-hmm. after I'm done giving a speech, I want to go take a nap. I do too. And I want a Slurpee. I just yeah, want to go really. go get – I want to just go – yeah, go to my room and hide away. And it's interesting too because as a teacher um, in a classroom, you might also have children in the room or classroom that are more introverted and extroverted. And mm-hmm. many, you know, many times it looks like our school systems might be more uh, favoring of an extrovert than an introvert. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think it depends a lot on the school and also a lot on the grade level, but you do see a lot of a push towards collaboration in the schools and, you know, having a lot of group works and stations and opportunities for students to interact with one another and problem solve, which is great. And they that teaches students these really great skills like teamwork and leadership and problem solving, which they need. But uh, if it's every day, all day, it can become very taxing on an introverted student. Oh, yeah. And um, so talk to us a little bit about um, about your book and, and what you're trying to, to kind of help us learn to do, either as an introverted teacher or as an introverted student. Yeah, so the book kind of came about as a result of a series of workshops I gave, and the workshop was originally about introverted students and how to create a balanced classroom, because since everyone falls somewhere on a spectrum, you don't want to just cater your classroom to extroverts or just introverts. You know, if you all of a sudden take all your group work and turn it into individual work, then you're leaving your extroverts out. Right. So you want to kind of find a balance for everyone, and so I started by writing about different ways that teachers could have that balance in their classroom. And in the process of giving these workshops last summer, I had teachers coming up to me and talking to me and saying, you know, I never realized that I was an introvert and how can I help myself? Because I'm just as burnt out as my introverted students at the end of the day. Hmm. So I ended up adding that section to the book because it was something that people kept coming up and talking to me about. And I realized that I hadn't really addressed it yet, even though it was something that I myself had experienced as a teacher. Yeah. So I found that that was a really important aspect of the book that I kind of plugged in there. And it was almost a last minute addition, but it actually ended up being kind of one of the most important parts. Well, and I bet, man, there's so many teachers that probably, uh, you know, are indebted to you because of that. When I think of, um, I guess that is the sign is if I'm, if I'm exhausted at the end of every day, like like thoroughly spent even halfway through my day, it might be that I am an introvert, and I just am in a. I haven't created the systems to manage it very well. Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, teaching is an exhausting. It's sure. Career. You know, it's a very high energy career whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. But I think introverts just, you know, especially if you fall really far on the introverted end of the spectrum, like I do, it becomes even more exhausting and even more taxing and even more likely that you'll burn out. Hmm. Does So talk to us then, um, what are some of the things we should maybe be uh, thinking about? Let's maybe first start as a teacher. What are things that a teacher can do? Or And I guess because a lot of this will apply to any job, any profession, really. What, what, are, what are some things that we should watch out for if we do sense that we are an introvert or on that spectrum um, that might make our lives a little easier? Yeah, this is um, probably the hardest thing to do as a teacher, but really it is finding the opportunity to take some time for yourself to be alone. And, uh, you know, it it seems impossible sometimes because you start early in the day, you're with students or other teachers or your administrators all day, and then sometimes some teachers go home and they have a family of their own. Mm -hmm. So there's 
all of these expectations, all of these things that these teachers feel they need to perform and the need to be on for, but just taking even, even, you know, three to five minutes to be alone can make a big difference. And I talk a little bit in the book about um, kind of finding your point zero or, which is essentially a, you know, a meditation technique or deep breathing technique where you just, you know, lock yourself in a room for three to five minutes. Even, you know, a lot of teachers have been known to have another teacher watch their classroom and run and hide in the bathroom for three minutes. Yeah. And just breathe, just be alone for three to five minutes. And that can just make huge strides towards being able to go back and be, you know, fully present in your classroom and not worried about constantly falling into exhaustion. Mm. And I mean, that can be, sometimes you might have a minute uh, you know, when the kids go to recess or something where you might have a minute, you're saying you don't need 20 minutes. I mean, you'd love it, but but three or four minutes instead of – and what, what I notice I do is I end up needing to run to go, okay, I'm going to go get my lunch. I'm going to go do this. I'm gonna, I've got five things I've got to go do. But what I might want to do first is decompress. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, I don't have time for that. I've got to do five million things. But really, you don't have time not to do that. Mm -hmm. Because when you take the self-care out of your schedule, then everything else becomes less effective. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. And then do I mean, can can somebody uh, as a school teacher, maybe you just can't. I was thinking if you put kids into an activity and they had to go write and do an assignment, that might buy you some time, but I guess not because you still have to control the classroom and they're still coming up with questions. Yeah, yeah, and your role as a teacher, even when you're not up actively teaching a lesson or lecturing or uh, you know, um, you know, leading a group activity, you're still a facilitator, so going around and answering questions and helping making sure that students stay on task and whatnot. So really you're... you're at, Whenever there's a student in your classroom, you're on in some way. Yeah. I mean, this really would be a big driver of teacher burnout. Yeah, it definitely is. And and is so the signs of burnout would be just you dread going to your job. You you can't do it anymore. You'd rather stay home in bed. I mean, what what are yeah. the what are some other signs of burnout? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting contrast because I, I love teaching, um, but I did sometimes dread going into the classroom in the morning. And for me, I felt a lot of that fatigue, um, and I, I would get headaches every day. Um, the, the fatigue, though, was particularly noticeable. I would come home after a day in the classroom, and I would just collapse on the couch and sleep for a couple hours. And I would get up, and I'd have dinner. And then I'd go and I'd sit in front of the TV and just stare at it until it was time to go to bed because I just could not bring myself to do anything else. I didn't hmm. have the energy to do anything else or to put my my you know my my positive energy into anything. So I just kind of blanked out at the end of the day. So my life became about the classroom and about being on during those times when I could handle it. And you know that wasn't advantageous to me in my life or my students. And it really was the fatigue, the headaches. Uh, irritability, and then just kind of over time, a loss of interest in the things that once really jazzed you and energized you. If I, I love teaching, but over time, you know, I, I was in the classroom for five years, and by the fifth year, I was so burnt out that I was just ready to, you know, I was ready to throw in the towel. Yeah. Well, and it's it's an interesting thing because it's hard to find a teacher anyway, right? And especially an effective one. And maybe this is should be a message to 
um, educational in administrators that maybe we need to accommodate this a little bit more. You, it really is. You've got these larger classrooms today with all of the teachers um, and you're kind of booked morning to end tonight. You've still got to do the correcting of your paperwork. You're underpaid. And underpaid, I wonder, becomes the argument we make. But the reality is, too, you don't get a break. And so it seems like we maybe need to revamp or, you know, have a have an aide that can come sit in the class and rotate through and give every teacher 15 minutes every couple hours to just go regroup. Yeah, and I think it really starts with just an awareness of, of the fact that introversion and extroversion exists because I think in a lot of the mainstream public, it's still kind of something, it's something that's gotten a lot more publicity lately, but it's yeah. still something that people don't necessarily understand. When I was teaching, I didn't know I was an introvert. I just thought that being exhausted all the time was the way that it was supposed to be. Welcome to teaching. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you hear that, you know, oh, you're exhausted. Well, that's the job. Um, <laughs> it, but it doesn't have to be. You right. Know, there are things that can be put into place to make it a more enriching experience for everyone involved. And I think the first step to that is really just Looking at your, if you're an administrator, looking at your staff, if you're a teacher, looking at your students, if you're a student, looking at yourself, and understanding where you and your people fall on that spectrum so that you can make the necessary accommodation. Yeah, that would be a great, um, uh, what do they call them, just like breakout for your teachers at one of your teacher faculty meetings is go have everybody read Susan Cain's book. I know the book is called Quiet. I know that's – when you read that, that was kind of the big life changer, huh? Yeah, that was a pivotal moment for me because I was out of the classroom. I had been out for maybe six months to a year at that point, and it was just this light bulb went off, and I was just suddenly like, oh, hmm. that's why I was so exhausted. That makes so much sense. And immediately I felt this sense of there's so much more I could have done in the classroom if I had known this and if I had, you know, put the the measures in place to make sure that I was, you know, fully in and present every single day. And that's one of the why I transitioned that into some of the teacher workshops that I did, because I did want to stay in education. After I left the classroom, I continued working with teachers. And that became my outlet to kind of say, hey, this is what I went through. Um, and I didn't realize this about myself. But you should realize this about yourself now if this is you, mm. because you can still do something about it. Yeah, no, I think that's so powerful. Um, let's take a break and come back and continue the discussion, Jessica. We're speaking with Jessica Honard, who is the author of um, the book about introversion in the classroom, and she's walking us through her lessons, what she learned, and and really some ways that teachers, but really all of us, when you think about it, we all need to really know who are we and how are we interacting with our our community, how are we interacting with our classroom and and the environment around us. Man, if you're an introvert and don't know it, you may be just slowly beating yourself to death. Uh, we'll be giving you more tools, more information. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Isolation pushes you till every muscle aches Down the only road it ever takes But everybody's scared of this place and staying away Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we've got a great uh, topic here about introversion and, uh, you know, what what better source than uh, somebody that wrote the book on introversion in the classroom, How to Avoid Burnout and Encourage Success. 
her name is Jessica Onard, and she is a, a, a teacher, a past teacher, and now an educator that educates uh, teachers and I guess all of us about how to be um, more attentive to our own emotional needs. And one of those is introversion versus extroversion. If you are an introverted person, and again, she taught us earlier that introversion and extroversion is a spectrum, right? So it's kind of a continuum. I mean, you might you might not uh, necessarily be an introvert or an extrovert. Maybe you're a little bit of both. But what it usually has more to do with than whether you like people or not, it's more about how you convert energy. Some people that are introverts, uh, they might convert their energy by being more alone, doing more solo kind of based activities or with just a few people. Um, An extrovert is somebody that needs to kind of be getting their energy from outside of themselves, working with others or interacting with others or kind of in a more public way. And so um, it's a powerful lesson I think that we've all learned. And Jessica, again, we appreciate you being back with us. Thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, it's been great so far. Teach us um, one of the things that you found uh, in in the book Quiet. It was just a book, and all of a sudden it, you realize, holy cow, maybe the reason I've been burning out is because I didn't know this this side of my introversion, extroversion. What was the biggest lesson that, that came to your mind about uh, your introversion that you wish you had known maybe 10, 15 years earlier? You know, really, a lot of it has to go back to how I was, not just as a teacher, but as a student myself when I was in high school. Um, I was a very quiet student. I was the, you know, the kind of student who always had a book in her hand and was kind of in the corner reading. Mm -hmm. And I always felt a little out of step with my peers. And I think in reading Quiet, it helped me realize that my, not only feeling a little, you know, kind of like the odd one out as a student, um, but also burning out in high school. You know, when I was in um, my junior and senior year, I actually left the high school and took classes at the community college. And one of the reasons I did that was so that I could control my schedule because the highly interactive group-oriented schedule that was part of the high school environment didn't suit me very well, and I didn't want it. I didn't want to be forced to interact with people all the time. I so I went to the community college. Um, at the time, I just thought I was weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just figured I'm just the odd kid out. I'm the you know the bookworm, the the dork, the you know all of those things. But later on, and after I you know left high school, went into teaching itself, um, and was still burnt out from teaching, and then I came across Susan Cain's book, and I realized, okay, there's a reason for this, and it has nothing to do with me being weird. Yeah. It has everything, I mean, something I'm a little weird, but it has everything to do with I was not taking care of myself, and I wasn't acknowledging the importance of how I needed to take care of myself. Well, and how difficult to think you're carrying a label that you're, you're a weird kind of dork, when in reality you're just the perfect you. You're just you. And and, and you didn't even – because we don't. In our society, we don't always honor kind of the quiet thinker as much as we do the loud comedian in the class. And yeah. and it must have been torture for you to sit in some classes where the extroverts could just keep getting the attention and drawing more attention and really impacting your own energy. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, we live in a a society that, you know, whether you're talking in kindergarten or in, you know, corporate culture, it 
there's this underlying message that to be successful, you have to be social. You know, when you when you think of a successful person, when when students see images of successful people in pop culture or in corporate or, you know, in their own lives, a lot of times it's kind of this this very gregarious personality who's out there and you know go get them and very much. Um, being vocal about what they want and going and getting it. And for some people, that just isn't natural. But when you start receiving those messages from a very, very early age, you know, from from pre-K or kindergarten, where you have a student who may prefer to work alone, but then they're saying, oh, you know, don't be so antisocial, go Mm -hmm. play with your friends, that gets absorbed and internalized. And over time, it turns into, well, what I want to do is wrong. What I want to do isn't going to get me where I want to be in life. And there's something, yeah, there's something about me that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and I don't think it's malicious or or intentional. Right. I think it's just a product of our culture. Well, and maybe timing too, because now we might actually talk more about introversion versus extroversion than we ever did twenty, thirty years ago. So, I mean, that that I guess is an important part of your book and your lesson is make sure we are identifying in our classroom if there are students that maybe are a little bit more introverted or extroverted, talk to their parents. Do they, instead of just saying they're antisocial, go find out from the parents, do they tend to be an introvert? Mm -hmm. And ask those questions. Yeah, and parents know what an introvert is. Exactly. And then maybe get them some education, like by reading the book Quiet. I mean, there's so many lessons in there. Even Harvard Business School was talked about and discussed because their very entry requirements to get into the business school pretty much set up only introverts or only extroverts could succeed there. Um, Mm -hmm. Introverts need not apply, basically, because most of their work was being done in committee, in teams. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that Susan Cain did really well in that book was she looked at a lot of different uh, industries and a lot of different cultures, um, like corporate culture and people who fit into these different areas within our adult society and just looked at, here's how it's set up so that an extrovert will thrive and an introvert will struggle. Hmm. And so one of my intentions in writing introversion in the classroom was to kind of take those lessons that she was showing me um, in the adult world and bringing them back to the classroom and to the, the kids that are getting these same messages but from a very early age. Hmm. What would you suggest teachers do then if they, if they maybe to detect an introverted child and, and or parents uh, do to make sure that their children, if they are introverted, are getting the best experience they can in school? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to give teachers one more thing to do. Right. Um, and it's also hard to tell necessarily when you have an introverted student versus an extroverted student for a couple of reasons. First, because it does fall on a spectrum. You know, I may be an introvert and maybe I'm having an extroverted day. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if I'm an introvert who's been receiving these messages my whole life that I would be better off if I act more extroverted, you might not be able to tell I'm an introvert until after school when I go home and crash. But during school, I could be the most outgoing person, gregarious person in the world. Right. Um, I think a lot of introverts get very good at hiding their introversion because they don't want to be seen as different, especially when they're teenagers. Um, I think when when students are younger, um, like kindergarten level, it's a little easier because they're still at an age where they gravitate towards what they want to do as opposed to necessarily falling into what they feel like they should be doing. So if you are a teacher of younger kids, 
you know, pay attention to what they want to do naturally. And if you happen to have older kids, uh, the best thing to do is to start a dialogue and have them figure out for themselves what they are because they may be surprised. Yeah. You know, um, find, find a way so that you can ask them, so that you can start talking. You're like, hey, I'm an introvert or I'm an extrovert. What are you and what does that mean? Let's talk about it. I actually have a quiz up on my website that teachers can give to their students and just the quick 15-question quiz that helps them determine where do I fall on the spectrum. And I think for older students, it's, it's an important exercise to even just talk about it a little bit and say that it's okay to be different from the person next to you. We're all a little bit different, and we all deal with our energy in different ways. Yeah. Is, what is the website's name? Where do we, where do we go for that? Uh, the, it's adaptive introvert, so um, A D A P T I V E, and then introvert. Okay, so adaptiveintrovert.com dot com is uh, the mm-hmm. website, and then go on and take a test. And I guess really the, the the real gist of it is that parents could could take a bigger role in helping their child identify what they are. And again, it it doesn't have to be a label. It's not good or bad. It's just kind of. It's a, it's a, it's just who they are. It's how they it's how they convert energy, really, and uh, that that's going to be really important to know long run. If if we had to wrap it up, what would be the one thing you'd say that all of us should remember, uh, Jessica, to make sure that we are we are um, giving everybody the best shot to make it through life? Uh, know thyself and. Uh, be open to starting a dialogue and don't be afraid to use yourself as an example. You know, I think introverted teachers, especially, but introverts everywhere are in a position to be advocates to younger people who don't necessarily understand where they fall on the spectrum or what to do with that information mm. once they have it. That's a great, that's a great rule to use yourself as an example because then you'll lose some of the shame too. You don't, I mean, there's this weird shame behind it. Like you were even saying, feeling like something's wrong with you, but uh, it really mm-hmm. is a strength as well. We appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. Jessica, thank you so much for your great work, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's you bet. Great. You bet. Jessica Onard, and again, the book, um, it's its really going to help you blow up the burnout, which, heaven forbid, you know, we all need. We, we don't want to go down in our uh, in our passion. We don't want to lose something we love doing. And if you've been called to teach or anything you've been called to do, The burnout will hit if you're not managing your energy right. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, a little Coach's Corner for you here about uh, this um, introversion versus extroversion. It was a big learning for me, too. I I never – I always thought I was an extrovert because I, you know, I could do – I could do okay with people. You know, I'm a highly trained professional. But what I realized, too, reading that exact same book, Quiet, is it's not about if you like people or not. It's about where your energy conversion comes from. Also in the book, another thing I learned about is a, is a concept called high sensitivity. And um, one of the things they're finding out is that some people are just more highly sensitive to information, to stimuli, to other uh, to, to inputs from their world, right? So a highly sensitive person, it doesn't mean you're nice, doesn't mean, oh, he's so nice. It just means... 
that you notice more. And about 20% of the population, actually, uh, Elaine Aaron, who's been on the show a couple of times, and if you want more information about it, you can go look up Matt Townsend and Elaine Aaron, A-R-O-N. We have uh, an entire show with her about this high sensitivity topic. But one of the things I find is that um, one of the reasons I, I tend to be an introvert and I like being alone at times is because... I get overstimulated with information. There's, I pick up a lot of information. And for me, it's actually a really good thing because it's how I make a living, right? I work and coach clients, and when I'm talking to them and working with them, I can pick up a lot of information about them. The other problem, though, is I pick up a lot of information that's not relevant, like the person walking outside the window of this radio show. So when I'm sitting here, I'm talking, I'm processing. I'm also noticing what's on my screens in front of me. I'm noticing Ben rolling his eyes. I notice people coming up the stairs by my window. And all of this information's coming in. I notice when we have people waiting to come in the studio, all of this is going on. But if I'm picking up, let's just say, two times more than maybe the average person is processing and picking up, it's going to exhaust me. And it will exhaust me. Like I can be in a room and I can know somebody is mad at me or at their partner or whatever. And the minute I see that, my body starts watching them more, picking up more about them, knowing more about them. And uh, they call that high sensitivity. Well, when you're highly sensitive then, all of a sudden when I'm done coaching, I go right into my office, which I leave dark. And um, I sit in the dark, and nobody gets why I'll sit in the dark for 20 minutes. Um, but it's mainly because I'm trying to de I'm trying to destimulate. I'm trying to unwind. And and one of the fastest ways I've ever found to unwind is shut my eyes, not sleep per se, but that's not a bad thing. But if I just close my eyes, and Elaine Aaron brings up the fact that 60 percent of our data comes through our eyes. So if you would just shut your eyes off, a huge portion of your stimulation would go away. Have you ever noticed that once you turn your phone on, it just you become more and more needy and addicted to it? Uh, because that's information. There's energy. There's light coming in. And all of a sudden, it turns on all of your systems. So I usually like to just destimulate. I'll do the craziest thing every Sunday morning before we take our kids when we're trying to get our kids to go to church and we're getting everybody dressed and everybody's getting in the car. Everybody's stressed. Everybody needs to hurry and get dressed. Put your belt on. Tons of tension. <sighs> then I, when we drive to church, we drive in. I drop everyone off at the building and then I go park. I go find a parking place. And it buys me about two more minutes. And in those two minutes – big deep breath. If I had another minute, I might close my eyes for a sec and just destimulate. I feel like you're making excuses for taking naps all the time. Yeah. They're not all naps. You'll know when I'm napping because I'll be slack-jawed, drooling, and you'll hear a snoring coming out of my throat. Yeah, that's happened a couple of times on the show. I've Yeah, I, that was you. Hello, I'm talking on the show. <laughs> well, anyway. that's, that's why it was awkward because it was in the middle of the show. That's totally weird. Uh, We'll take a break, folks. Don't listen to him. He's usually not even awake. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Do what we can here every day to give you the information you need to live a healthier, happier life. Today, no exception. No exception. Did you hear that crazy comment that Ben made last hour at the very end of the show? No, what did he say? Um, Do I we need to have another meeting? Yeah. Man. Yeah. We, I, had, I had plans after the show, Ben. No, I think we just ought to have, we just need Don to have the meeting. Well, I've I've made several comments. Which one are you talking about? This was the one um, when we were talking at the very end about a highly sensitive person, and then you said the comment about, oh, you're just making an excuse to sleep more. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I said that. And he said it on the air. So he shamed the highly sensitive. He shamed the talent. Man. It was a talent shame. I, I guess you are a little bit sensitive, Matt. <sighs> You said you were highly Nine, sensitive. 10, he he 11, sits there 12, and just lobs 13, microaggressions. 14, 16, left and right. 18, Are you right? 18, 20. <sighs> You're balanced again? Yeah. You're okay? Yeah. All right. Can we go on? I'm going to get him. You know, there's I'm going to get him. I'm yeah. just using the information you've given me, Matt, and you said it's 90% correct. When did we give him a microphone? I believe he's always had one. <sighs> we got to talk about that. I can talk to engineering. They can disconnect it. I need one of the three microphones removed from this room, mm. and I'd like it to be his. Man. Anywho, um, uh, great show today. We're going to be talking about depression, anxiety, unhappiness in your life, and we'll be talking with a, uh, a coach, an expert that can walk us through how to kind of how – to, how to ease through and help somebody ease through and handle their, their depression. How to turn this tragedy into an uplifting experience, but how to help others go through it, which is a needed gift, right? How would it be? I mean, some people actually just aggravate your emotion. Some people just get on your last nerve. No way. Uh huh. Huh. That's some a weird people, concept. I know. Some pe- and they sit across from you, some of them, for three hours, and you can't get away because you're trapped in a sealed room. <sighs> I mean, the door opens, but. I've got a show to do. You're kind of stuck. <laughs> I can't get out. Hey, speaking of can't get out, um, do you feel like you're stuck in this election process? Yes. Uh, the Donald Trump uh, is throwing some negative comments toward the Theodore Cruz, the, a.k.a. The, Ted. The problem is you think it'll be over in November. We'll no. have that vote and then it's done, except whoever wins yeah. is one of these people. Yeah. And then it'll continue. The Republicans have got to be stop. wondering what is going on. Oh, they know. Something's going crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it was in Utah. They had the we had the um, Super Tuesday the fourth, aka Western Caucuses. Western Tuesday. Western Tuesday. Yeah, I think that's what CNN was pushing. And in that uh, in Utah, Senator Cruz dominated. It's about seventy percent of the vote. Killed it. Gets right. 40 delegates. Which isn't much. Which isn't much. Uh, Arizona, the Trumpster wins. He got 66. Uh-huh. Which Idaho, is more. 
Senator Cruz. It's like 30 there, I think. Takes Idaho. So in the total delegates, I guess, did did uh, Cruz get more? I think combined, yes. So Cruz kind of had a really good day. Uh, Hillary Clinton, she got walloped in Utah. Ber- Senator Bernie Sanders, what, he got like 80% of the vote. Hillary got 20%. But Hillary took Arizona. Who took Idaho? Bernie. Bernard. Bernard Sanders took Idaho along with Ted Cruz, Theodore, if you want to go their See, this full is, names. This is where it's it's kind of an interesting thing because everyone keeps counting them out, but then they just do so well. But they're states that don't have many delegates, enough for them to catch up, and no, the opponents are gaining more delegates. You're missing the point. Oh, okay. Go ahead. I the missed point the point. Is they, I thought it was math. No, no, no. As See, we're trying to get to a specific number well, but again, win the nomination. Hillary wants to shut this thing out. Shut it down. And if she could get Bernard to just walk away, right. we'd be done. But he said he's not going to do that. He's not going to walk away. And instead, he actually keeps getting some some pretty good you know, press and some pretty good push. Now, it won't win him the nomination. No. But it will bloody the water. Well, yeah. That's the last thing she wants. Oh, yeah. She wants this dealt with so she can just turn and focus on – the Republicans, but she can't do that yet. <laughs> no. And who would you focus on but Donald? Because Donald's in the lead. And she'd probably just be better to sit it out and just wait for them to kind of tear each other apart and see what happens. Yeah. That's really the better solution. But <sighs> I she... think the, the best answer to all of this is God bless America. Really? No, seriously. God, okay. please bless oh, okay. America. More of a plea than we a We are statement. in major trouble. Gotcha. Don't you think? Like, that's all I can do every night now is just say, please, please help us. Oh. Anywho, um, anything uh, – well, no, I found this story that I wanted to show you and I just got to okay, find it. Okay, then now. I have something funny we need to play to well, kind of lighten the mood. Well, I guess – what do you mean lighten the mood? Well, you just came from a place where you're pleading, asking for help, yeah. pleading for any sort of deliverance from this political situation. <laughs> but we have things like uh, – where's that cut sheet you got there, Ben? I don't even know what number it is. Let me see it here. Go Play clip uh, seven. This was on Jimmy Kimmel last okay, night. Okay. He took uh, Donald Trump and took all the clips of him saying he loves things. I love this country. I love the country. I love the old days. I love free trade. I love my company. I love building buildings. I love what I'm doing. I love hopping around. I love the way they twist and turn. I love NASCAR. I love your potatoes. We love people that faint. I love that sign. I love to bring my people up. I love helping people. I love Howie Kurtz. I love Sheriff Joe. I love my father. I love my kids. I love these people. I love tough people. I love my protesters. I love this guy over here. I love women. They love me and I love them. I <laughs> 40 love more seconds. Life. I love the military. I love wow. great generals. I love the vets. I love you the you can cut warriors. this off anytime. Oh, he's full of love. I love Just positive. I love this is a love people. fest. I love the Hispanics. I love the See? Saudis. I love Israel. I love the evangelicals. I love the Mormons. I love Ooh. South Carolina. <laughs> I love Iowa. I love Nashville. I love you, Ohio. I love Idaho. I love Nevada. I love New Hampshire. I love Florida. I love Georgia. Mm. I do love right. Virginia. He's I love full you, of people. Love. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I What's, love you all. I love you. What's the I problem? I don't know. I love you. I love the poorly educated. <laughs> I love the poorly educated. 
it, it seems he's like full of love. He's so full of he's so full of it. Well, he's full. Yeah, he's so full <laughs> of love that it's like, what? Why are people so against him? Right. He's got nothing but love to offer. So maybe that gives you more of a positive spin on the political climate at the moment. You know, it did. I feel a lot better. There you go. Little little lift you. I'm trying to lift you up, make your day more positive. Trump love fest. There's a faster way to do that. What's that? Remove one microphone out of this. Could be. Terry's not that bad. Wow. Uh, he doesn't get it. No. Missing the entire point. I would love to Trump him right You now. were saying, as, as I interrupted you with the um, Trump love fest. Well, I know. That was so good. Uh, did you hear about the Florida lottery? This is crazy. They say families that eat together stay together. But uh, what about families that play the lottery together? Last week, a pair of brothers decided to buy lotto tickets on their way from Sunshine State back to Pennsylvania. Having spent several weeks fishing in the Florida Keys, it turned out to be a wise decision. Both tickets hit, but not all winners are created equal. James Stockless of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, won Florida's $291 million Powerball. Wow. Excellent. While his brother, Bob, Hmm. he scored the $7 Powerball. Well, or the seven dollar win. Yeah. So you know, seven bucks. One of you Why takes seven? away two ninety one, two hundred ninety one million. The other yeah. takes away seven bucks. Hmm. Can you imagine that ride home? <laughs> so, um, can you loan me a couple dollars? We're, we're going to split this ride. We're going to just add them all together and then split them up. Is that why, what we're doing? Why would there be a reason to split? Yeah, he, you each bought your own ticket, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, Bob, you could have won just as easily as I could have. Yeah. I mean, I mean, my I got seven bucks. <laughs> I've basically kind of needle that point of it, James. I can't even buy I the gas. I want seven dollars. Yeah, you can't even buy the gas. James is like, I'll take care of it. I got it. I'll cover the gas. I've come into some money. If you didn't know, <laughs> I'll pay for the whole trip. <laughs> Maybe That's you sad. heard I'm a winner, and you're mm-hmm. not so much. But really, they're both winners. They are. He won seven dollars. I mean that. That's not chump change. That's almost a combo mill. No, well, I mean biggie size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> that that would be kind of awkward after a while. Can you imagine the parties from here on out? Hey, do you guys want to go to Cancun with us? Um, I'd love to, but we can't afford it because we only want seven dollars in the lotto. Man, you're such a wet blanket, Bob. <laughs> ever since ever since that last trip, you've been so boring. Yeah. What would you do? Would you would you give them give some money to Bob if you were James? I've always thought that if I won a big pile of money, like two hundred seventy million dollars, that I would pay off my family's debt. Really? Yeah. Just yours? I mean, you're all your family. Yeah. So your well, brothers, my, your sisters, yeah, my, my, my immediate family. Just go in, and if you still have house, um, you know, payments on your house, I'd take care of it. Take care of your cars. Would you pay? Would you like pay off your coworkers' debts? No. So if you won the lotto, you wouldn't, like, throw me some cashola? No, I think you're okay. I'm pretty destitute. You're just starting out. You need to learn that life isn't all about just, you know, gimme, gimme. Yeah. But you are destitute. I totally agree. Yeah, but you're a student. It's fine. You'll learn. You'll grow from this experience. Yeah. You'll grow from watching me and my pile of Scrooge McDuck money. What what would you do with— Your luck money? Yeah. What would you do with the other $290 Whatever I wanted. Oh, you're so selfish. As Mark Cuban uh, said in that article I showed you a couple weeks back, I would not invest it. 
No, don't invest it. There's no point in investing. You're just losing money at that point. Would you go start businesses? No. Yeah. What 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 business do I have in starting businesses? I know what business you'd start. I I would pay for college for my kid, mm-hmm. obviously. You'd have a you'd maybe a, f- a few of my nephews. Foam lightsaber I, business. I would invest in pool noodle lightsabers. Pool noodle lightsabers with helmets for children four and under. No helmets. They need them. Helmet free. I think there's a scourge upon society when it comes to some <laughs> use of helmets, and I think if it comes to the lightsaber battles, they do not need helmets. You could buy a couple of shares for Ra- Tasers Are Us. Mm. I could do that if you know that what? actually existed. I'll, I'll, I'd sell you the company for 10 mil right now. Taze it. No, I would pass. It's got huge brand awareness. It does not sound like a good investment. All right. Let's get to the headlines, Terry. Anything going on around the world we need to be focused on right now? There are. Following the multiple suicide attacks in Brussels that left at least 31 dead, Ted Cruz called for a ramped-up monitoring of Muslim American, uh, the Muslim-American population in the country, saying we need to empower law enforcement to patrol and secure Muslim neighborhoods before they become radicalized. The New York City Police Department isn't going to stand for Ted Cruz, who, in other comments, dragged them in with his comments that they don't necessarily agree with after the republican presidential candidate called for increased patrolling and monitoring of muslim americans uh, neighborhoods citing the uh, abandoned bloomberg bloomberg area area cooperative surveillance of particular areas in the wake of deadly the uh, the shootings and, and uh, the bombings in brussels the nypd responded to a firm dismissal for ted cruz saying hey ted cruz are our nearly 1,000 muslim officers a threat also Mm. Asked, this is from a department spokesperson, J. Peter uh, Donald, from the New York City Police Department. He said this on Twitter. It says, it's hard to imagine a more incendiary, foolish statement coming from Ted Cruz. Right. Just be quiet. Now, the, the, the policies were, uh, part of it was the stop and frisk policies that the New York City Police Department had. Also, they were doing surveillance on mosques before they had done anything wrong. Right. They were just outside listening for, you know, and that that kind of thing has ended now that they've moved on from those policies. Uh, Democratic presidential candidate uh, Bernie Sanders appeared on the Jimmy Kimmel show last night and addressed his ideas on how to fight Islamic terrorists. ISIS is a disgusting, barbaric organization. We've seen what they've done in Paris, what they've done in Brussels. People are afraid of an attack in the United States. But I think what we have to understand is we're not going to undermine the Constitution of the United States of America uh, in order to effectively destroy ISIS. We can do that. So our goal in this issue is to destroy ISIS in coalition with Muslim nations on the ground with the support of the United States and other major powers. I think we can do that. So Bernie likes the team approach to stopping ISIS. The team Team everyone against them. In other news, the Stop Trump movement could have hit a major snag. It turns out that John Kasich and Ted Cruz supporters, Donald Trump, is an appealing second choice for their people. So if Ted Cruz or John Kasich, either one of them drop out, then then Donald becomes just an Donald appealing. becomes the option. So oh. it's not like the Kasich supporters go to Cruz. The majority will go to Trump, according to polling. Interesting. So Stop Trump won't work if the, the people... You know, mm-hmm. if one of those candidates get out and then they, they don't go to the not Donald Trump. The Quinnipiac University poll Wednesday showed that almost half of Kasich supporters would flock to Trump, not Cruz, if their candidate were to drop out of the, the race. Likewise, over half of Cruz supporters would go to Trump, not Kasich. Yeah. That really kind of derailed the Stop Trump movement. Oh, yeah, see. Maybe it's just a dream. It's a pipe dream. 
How much fruit juice needs to be in a fruit juice to be considered well fruit juice? Uh, it's the same thing, or a Slurpee, right? Uh, I would say seven juice units. Okay, it says for almost a decade, pomegranate juice company Palm. Have you ever heard of them before? P O M. Oh yeah, uh-huh. they have yeah. like kind of the right. unique looking pomegranate juice yeah. bottle. Uh, Palm Wonderful has claimed consumers were duped by Minute Maid's pomegranate blueberry juice, which actually contained far more apple and grape juice. Oh. But finding that Palm failed to show Minute Maid co-owner Coca Cola mis- misled consumers, a jury sided with Coke in Los Angeles court on Monday following a seven day trial. In a statement, the court in courthouse in a statement. Palm says it disappoint, it's disappointed with the decision because Coke intentionally confused customers. The company was seeking $78 million in damages from this product, which Coke discontinued in 2014 because of weak sales. The product contained 0.3% pomegranate juice, <laughs> but it's marketed as pomegranate blueberry. Yeah, and right? that ticked off the pomegranate king, Yeah, Palm. <laughs> like you guys are marketing apple juice and grape juice as pomegranate, and it's not. Interesting. They had a little battle, a little throwdown. So there's a throwdown. So it comes down to labeling. Is it lying to say it's pomegranate when there's only 0.3%? Apparently not. Pomegranate. Apparently not. That's why this show has 0.3% truth, according to our board op. 5%. According to our ex-board operator, when it's really 95% full saturated truth. Anyway, not uh, going to allow him to talk. We'll take a break. Uh, come back with our uh, next guest, Greg Threadgold, will be joining us. He will be talking about the Depression Miracle. He's going to be uh, walking us through his best-selling uh, book, Depression Miracle, and how he has learned to deal with depression for 40-plus years. Interesting insight stuff. Stick, uh, Folks, stick with us. Great uh, opportunity to learn how to uh, help those that might be suffering and help yourself while we're at it. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when tragedy strikes in life, it usually comes unexpectedly, doesn't it? And it makes it hard to withstand the blows of life, whether it's a cruel breakup, a life-threatening diagnosis, or the death of a loved one. These experiences are emotionally exhausting and often lead to depression. But does it always have to be like that? Is depression the inevitable end to every tragedy, or is there a different end of the story? Greg Threadgold joins us. He's a business owner, a life coach, and a best-selling author of The Depression Miracle. He joins us now in studio today to discuss his own life tragedies and teach us the seven essential keys we need to use to break out of depression and anxiety. And uh, Greg, we're so excited to have you here. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And you are uh, you're a coach with um, Kim Giles, who's always on the show, one of our favorite uh, coaches, life coaches around. Actually, yeah, I actually uh, with Clarity Point, and uh, she's my personal life coach. That's so great. And so you can find out uh, any more more information about you, Greg, at claritypointcoaching.com, right? Exactly. So talk to us about your book, The Depression Miracle. What is that about? Well, the, the title came from uh, 40 years that I suffered from depression, anxiety, and paranoia. Um, and the miracle that happened yeah. just a couple of years ago that cured me of it. And so it was actually a, a moment 
a miracle moment. Well, it was a it was for the grace of God, and it was a medical procedure. Uh huh. Um, it's called ECT, yeah, electro electric convulsive therapy. Scary thing for a lot of it people is, out there. It's basically shock treatment for those that. Uh, know it better by that and people are probably going they still do that yeah, yeah. a lot you of know. people don't think they still do it but they do it and it's i mean it's done in a completely different way i think healthier way today. very healthy very very good it was done at the the university of utah yeah. but i considered a miracle because walking in as depressed and down as i was and as suicidal as i was uh basically it had been explained to me i was gray mm. i wouldn't look at anybody i just sat yeah and you know 13 weeks later Boom. To never be depressed again, never have a panic attack, never have paranoia. That's a, that's a miracle. And and worth the you know kind of the traumatic procedure because I mean you're put under for those procedures, but you've, you it takes a while to recover every week. It does, and you have uh, definitely some side effects. Yeah, um, terrible memory loss. Yeah, which probably eighty percent of that has come back now. Has it? But just things I couldn't remember. But it, it actually allows you to kind of rewire your brain again. It, and, it is and, and fix some of those other thoughts and it it fixes them and it but it rewires. I mean, um, my taste in music has totally flip flopped. Has it really? My taste in food has totally flip flopped. Are you into rap now? I'm not into rap. But <laughs> See, my, wife, my wife came in my studio and I'm listening to Frank Sinatra and she are said, you really? "What are you doing?" <laughs> I said, great. "It's amazing. It's cool." But uh, things I watch on TV, yeah. my kids are like. Dad, you never watch football. And they're watching a high school football game. Who's playing? I said, I don't know. I just have to watch it. I just got to watch this. That's great. So talk about in the book, you you go through your story. But, I mean, you've had other traumas, other events, other traumatic things. So there's people out there that that are sitting there thinking, man, I have depression too. But maybe it's not as bad as needing ECT. But is is depression, is it a physiological thing? Is it a is it a just a psychological thing? What would how would you describe it? Um, I, I describe it, and um, you know, I approach this. I'm not a PhD. I'm not a doctor. Yeah. You know, I I got my honorary you know doctorate degree. I say from 40 years of, of being living. a patient, right? Being a patient and being there. Um, you know, I approach the book, and it's not a story about ECT. It's not my. It's, right. It's a little bit my story, but it's about the things that I found, the seven steps I found. To prepare yourself to get a miracle. Hmm. And the miracle could be anything. Yeah. But I know that tragedies happen every day. We're just recouping from yesterday. Right. But miracles happen every day too. Exactly. Tens Ta- of thousands of them. Talk to us about some of those. Let's go, let's go through those steps. Um, maybe give us a couple and then we'll take a break and then we'll come back and do okay. the others. What, what's, what is one step that would lead us down this road to the miracle? Um, the most important, I think, is trusting yourself. Which, again, doesn't sound that hard to the average person, but somebody that's dealing with depression times that by a thousand how hard that is. Right. Um, if you don't do this one, none of the other keys are going to work. But what I had to get through in my thinking was I always thought that life was out to get me, Yeah. that God was out to get me, the universe or whatever people believe in was out to get me and it, was, it would just magnify my anxiety. But I finally learned that life is safe. And, and I and it, I switched that from you know God is so dissatisfied with me that He's punishing me yeah, with his feelings. That's interesting. Yeah, you thought you were kind of just it was punitive. You were being you were being fixed or stopped or yeah. hurt. He's he's mad. 
And he's, he's mad at me and he's going to take it out on me. And so part of it is trust trust yourself that it's safe. That, that life is safe. Yeah. And as you know, Kim would say, this is your perfect journey. That's great. And she teaches. Yeah, totally. And, you know, what can I learn from this? And, and depression itself, I, I think it depends on different people. I mean, I was probably, I would say, as bad as anybody I know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went through 45 different medications. Oh, you've tried it all. And, but you, it's interesting. You went through the process of trying and learning. I and, tried everything. Yeah. I had 17 therapists. Wow. And I was an A student. I did everything they asked me to yeah. do because I'd made a decision to get better. You know, I ended up in four mental hospitals, yeah. four different states in mental hospitals, and that's a whole other interview oh, story sure, there. Yeah. Um, but I only needed one miracle yeah. to get better. And, and that began with trusting yourself. What was another principle that you used? Um, you got to start to move yourself from darkness to light. Mm. Um, I, depression, you feel like you're in a dark room, a giant dark room, and there's nobody there but you. You have to understand that in that giant room, there's a light switch somewhere. And you've got to start to make small steps, baby steps even, in in improving yourself to find that light switch. Yeah. And I hope through people understanding these keys, these seven keys, that it won't take them 40 years to get better like it took me. I understand that was part of my journey and that prepared me to be a life coach. And I had to go through all those things so I would understand what it was like. Right. But when they and when they get to that light switch, like I did, it's a dimmer switch, mm. and it doesn't get perfectly bright yeah. up as as soon as you flip it. You just kind of keep working you it. Keep up. working, and then eventually you get to that point where I believe a miracle can happen. That miracle can be a medica- medication. It can be a doctor. It can mm-hmm. be a book. It can be an event. It can be event. what somebody says to you. It can be anything. Yeah. It could be, you know, it's not a commercial for ECT, but it, right. could, it could be it that. It could be that. So That's great. That's, that's a lot of hope, right, for somebody that's in that dark space to think that, man, it, maybe it'll be today. The first thing you lose when you know that you have depression or you're diagnosed is hope. Yeah. And it, hopelessness just takes over your life. So taking baby steps to get that hope back, trusting yourself, starting to move and see a little bit of light in your life, a little yeah. bit of light in that room starts to bring the hope back. That's great. Uh, we're speaking again with um, Greg Threadgold, the author of the book The Depression Miracle, and he's walking through seven points. Uh, we'll take a break, come back, review two or three more of those points, but you can get the book The Depression Mi- Miracle. Uh, really, just look it up online, right? They can on find Amazon. on Amazon if you look up The Depression Miracle. Also, go to claritypointcoaching.com to get more information about Greg trying to you know, give you the tools, folks, to manage your dark side, your depression, uh, some of your anxiety, there is a miracle out there waiting for you. And uh, we'll come back, continue discussing, discussing it with Greg. Stick with us. We'll be right back. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us is Greg Threadgold, uh, who for 40-plus years has been dealing with severe depression, panic attacks, and anxiety. And uh, then he found the depression miracle, this moment where he, he basically was able to break through it. And today he's talking to us about seven principles um, that help 
everybody uh, kind of get to that point where you can see your own miracle. Um, this book, by the way, you can get it anywhere out there uh, on Amazon, but um, just look up The Depression Miracle. And Greg, thank you for being back here with us. Yeah, thank you. And you were talking about the seven points um, that kind of, I guess, lead us to that space where the miracle can appear and can be there for us. What What are some more of those points? You've already talked about we need to trust ourselves, realize that life is kind of working for you, not against you, and so is your God, and also move yourself from darkness to light. Um, one of the ones that surprises people, I think, is serving others. Yeah. Um, depression, you're you're – Coiled up, you know, kind of inward driven. Fear is what you have, and it makes you coil up. Yeah. Where trust and love expands, fear contracts. Um, But getting your eyes off yourself, even doing little things for people, even a smile, which is really hard for a depressed person, a hug, opening a door for somebody. It's amazing how many. Uh, older women I opened a door for and they said, do you know how long it's been since somebody opened a door for me? Mm, Amazing. Um, But see, that's it, is taking it outward. And then your body will kind of compensate, right? Because it'll start creating other chemicals that come when we do good things, when we serve other people. I mean, that's an interesting thing because you could just do the best you can to serve, find five examples a day where you're serving people. And if you could actually see that happening... That seems like that would start to create that light you were talking about in your life. Absolutely. Those, but, it's, those but again, it's hard when you're depressed because you're in that ball emotionally. You are. And the book itself is taught, again, from a patient's perspective. It's kind of tough love. Mm-hmm. It's not a cushy, feel-good book. Yeah. Um, the quote on the back that people love says, you can't leave footprints in the sands of time if you're sitting on your butt. That's true. That's so true. No, no doctor's going to make you better. No book's going to make you better. No therapist's going to make you better. You've got to get better. That's true. Um, and what I learned, and I actually learned it um, about serving others, and that is my first time I was in a mental hospital, and an unbelievably humiliating experience. And I met a guy named Bob. He was in his 60s. I was probably in my 30s. He'd been in and out of those places for 30 years. Hmm. He was a cocaine addict, heroin addict. He was an alcoholic. And we sat and we got to be pretty good friends and talked a lot. And one day he says, you know what? He said, I'm convinced that all the sane people are inside mental institutions. <laughs> and all the insane, insane people are outside. Yeah. And I went, Bob, that's ridiculous. And then he explained it to me. He says – a week ago, you and I didn't know each other. We have prayed together. We have hugged. We have cried together in group therapy and personal therapy. We have become friends, and I care and love about you. Yeah. He says, does that happen a lot to you on the outside, Greg? He said, people don't give a crap about you on the outside. Yeah, we're afraid, aren't we? And I went, wow. You get with people that are in your own instance. But from that and from Bob's example, I made a decision – I wasn't going to live his life. I wasn't going to do it. Mm-hmm. I was going to get better no matter what. But he served me. Yeah, yeah. That's a great, that's a great example because everyone in any situation can serve another. Absolutely. No matter where we are at, yeah. we can serve one another. Um, patience is another one. 
again, we don't know when that miracle is going to occur. It doesn't occur when we want it. Right. It occurs when God or the universe wants it to happen in their timing, which for me was a long time. But now I understand the reason why that happened. Um, that's that's a big deal, huh? Is is to just I guess you have to trust it'll come. Yeah. Trust it'll happen. You got to just give it to God or the universe, whatever you yeah. believe in. Okay, it's in your timing. I don't know why all this is happening. I don't know why, but I've got to be patient. Um, and with patience, I think it's two things. I had to learn to remove toxic people from my life. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that, again, are trying to direct your life and tell you, I'll just give up. You're, you're depressed. You're never going to accomplish anything. Um, and the hard thing about that was the two people that I had to remove from my life were my brothers hmm. because I was the baby of the family. I was the one who was made fun of and teased and yeah. everything was a yeah. joke. And my self-esteem was so low it couldn't handle anymore. So for a couple of years, I had to remove those two people from my life. It wasn't easy. Right. But it had to be done and I had to be selfish yeah. at that point. Um the other thing with patients is, is I started to study people who suffered from mental illness like I did. And the things they accomplished, not because they had mental illness or depression, but um, in, in spite of it, yeah. the things they accomplished. I mean Lincoln, Beethoven, Michelangelo, Hemingway, uh, you know, modern, yeah, they, yeah. modern days, Oprah, Jim Carrey, yeah. Ellen DeGeneres. I mean the list just goes on and on of presidents and you know, for the Mormon audience – Spencer W. Kimball suffered from yeah. terrible depression. And just to see, okay, I can accomplish things even though I have this. Right. I can run a business. You know, I can do the things that I need to do. I can keep a job. I yeah. can run a family. I can do those things. Well, and, and then I guess all of a sudden you have this contrast of that there is hope. There are examples and you could become one of those examples if you'll just be patient. Right. And then the miracle – so all of these eventually lead to the miracle. We only have about a minute left. What would you say, Greg, is, is the number one thing that somebody should do today that is, is kind of stuck in the darkness of depression? They feel like they can't get out. Maybe it's something you've already told us. But what could they do today to immediately – or to, to start seeing some movement toward the light? Um, two really quick things. I – when you get that miracle – Keep practicing these things. Don't go backwards. Yeah. I got to the point where I looked at my wife and I said, I am truly happy for the first time since I was seven years old. That's great. And six weeks later, my LDS missionary son died oh. in Taiwan. But God had prepared me so good mentally to be able to handle that tragedy. Yeah. So even though we're better, we got to keep practicing these yeah, things. Yeah, and it doesn't mean there's not something around the corner. And so wow. I really got out and served. Yeah. The other thing is just a quote. It says, when you write the story of your life, don't let somebody else hold the pen. Mm. It's your life. You hold the pen and you write it. Don't let anybody dictate what you can or can't do. You write your own life, but you have to do it. That's great. So true. Greg Threadgold, appreciate you being here. Again, the name of the book is The Depression Miracle. Go look it up on Amazon. Also, go you can go find Greg at ClarityPointCoaching.com and uh, get more information about him there. Greg Threadgold's his name. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. We'll be back in a minute. Stick with us, folks.
Hello, Dolly. This is Louis Dolly. Well, glad to have you back where you belong. You Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to shoot it down to our uh, favorite segment of the day. The day we get to just uh, kick back and relax with two of our good buddies. Today, uh, Spencer and uh, Jason is joining us. Jerem, again, um, on special projects somewhere. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. You should have heard Jerem's voice last night. Did it sound like this? The, like, our, like our singer here? A little bit, but more like Barry White. <laughs> that could have been interesting. Mm. Do your other segments feel bad when you talk about how this is your favorite segment? Uh, actually, no. They don't listen to the show. <laughs> just, yeah, no. It is my favorite segment. I'm just going to say it outright. You know why? Because I don't need to do anything. I just sit back and let you two go crazy. It also means that your show is <laughs> like 15 minutes from being it's done. It's so cool. <laughs> I am almost done, you guys. We're the clowns that come in at the end, man. I Make love every laugh and it's time to go home. Everybody loves the clowns at the end. <laughs> hey, um, did you guys hear about this new uh, slide going on in go, being put up in L.A.? You got to listen to this. Listen to this. The U.S. Bank Tower in downtown Los Angeles which bills itself as the tallest skyscraper in the West, has announced that a glass-enclosed slide will open to the public in June. It's a 45-foot-long sky slide that will start on the 70th floor of the 72-story building, and it will end on the 69th floor. And this is glass. So it's you're, glass. you're seeing all the way down. Uh-huh. It's 1,000 feet above the city's sidewalks, and you can see down from it. I don't know about you two, wow. but you can just go ahead and count me out. You're not right doing now. it? No. Oh, come it's only on. 45 feet? I thought you were going to say 45 stories. I know. I'm wouldn't like, that sweet. be cool? Yeah. Or just drop all the way to the pool by the building. Oh. <laughs> you come in like a missile. <laughs> that would be so cool. Your shorts, though, were left on like the 30th floor. Yes. Yeah, that'd yes. be bad. See, what would be even more impressive since it's like a bank building? Is like everybody like that's the only way you can get out. So at the end of the day, like five o'clock, you've got all these bankers in suits, and everybody out, getting on the slide that's to right. go down to their cars. Or what if you landed in like a pile of like money, mm. like uh, like uh, like thousand dollar bills, like yes. Ducktales? <gasps> yes, back to Scrooge McDuck. The only time that ever brought up on my show is when you guys are on diving into gold coins. Mm-hmm. Scrooge McDuck. That's how we roll, man. Hey, um, update me on BYU. Um, to quote my good friend Taylor Swift, <laughs> welcome to New York. It's been waiting They're going for to New you. York, boys and girls. <laughs> this is great. BYU headed to the NIT Final Four for the it's second huge. time in four years. They will play number one seed Valparaiso for a chance to play in the NIT Championship on March 31st. The Final <sighs> Four is March 29th, um, and the game will either be at 9 Eastern or 7 Eastern, depending on which slate ESPN gives to BYU. But, I mean, they took care of business against Creighton last night, and they did so in a manner that really was kind of unexpected. Why? Un- unless you were Jerem Jordan, who called for an unexpected source to have a big game. Really? Yeah, we're going to pat him on the back today, even though he's sick at home. Even though he sounds like Barry White, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, baby. That's a um, did did Collinsworth play? 
Kyle Collinsworth played 20 minutes, had 10 points, five rebounds, and four assists. And he was vis- visibly, you could tell he was just not feeling okay, great at okay, all. Okay, let me just say this. Fran Fraschilla, who will join us on today's show, okay. the ESPN college basketball analyst that called the game last night, said, Kyle Collinsworth looks like Johnny Manziel after a 24-hour bender. <laughs> oh, that is hilarious. <laughs> Sadly, the bender was probably cough syrup. Oh, man. Poor guy had three different IVs yesterday. He couldn't oh. keep anything down. He, he he was pale as pale, but he battled, man. He was pale, he was more pale than normal? Holy cow. And he sent out a tweet last night that said, if anybody needs me, I'll be hibernating in my dragon's lair. <laughs> <laughs> that is, don't you find it weird that, um, that both uh, Collinsworth and Jerem are sick at the same time? Yeah. What are you trying to get at there, man? I don't know. I'm just... Like- Throwing that out there. Uh Maybe they're maybe they're buds. Maybe maybe they are. Maybe they're an ice cream cone or something. (laughs) Yeah. Uh huh. And and can I have some, Kyle? (laughs) Can I have a taste? (laughs) They're sharing an ice cream. (laughs) That is a bad visual. Um, BYU, by the way, so they beat the Creighton Blue Jays. Creighton, by the way, one of the one of the best dental schools around. I didn't know that. Mm Hmm. Creighton has one of the best dental programs. One out of five people that you meet has had a Creighton grad's hands in their mouth. Really? Wow. Yeah, it's a stat that a lot of people don't talk and most about. most of them aren't dentists. I think that's the weird thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jace. That's exactly right. What up, Omaha? Yeah. So they're going to play Valparaiso. What is that like? How They're they're the number one seed, huh? Against yeah, number two seed? Valparaiso is a team that, quite honestly, probably should have gotten a bid to the NCAA tournament. Oh, Great. They were they were one of the teams that felt like they were severely snubbed. Mm-hmm. So they're um, mad. Well, yeah, they're but ticked. So was so was Saint Bonaventure and Saint Bonaventure lost in the first yeah. round to Wagner. It's all about like who's motivated to play, who can use that frustration and anger to, to motivate themselves to play hard. And Valpo clearly has done that. They took care of Saint Mary's yeah. last night. I mean, they shut them down. And you know that the West Coast Conference was crossing their fingers yes. that St. Mary's was going to win that game and you could have a showcase of BYU versus St. Mary's that at Madison would have been Square Garden. So that, at Madison Square Garden, MSG. Yeah. Yes. We, learned we that know that yesterday. you're not a fan of. No, totally <laughs> shoots right through my system. <laughs> More things I didn't want to know about Matt Townsend. <laughs> it makes me so sick. So um, so this game is when? When's the big game? The the the, the, the what a quarterfinal? Semifinal. Semifinal. Quarterfinal was last night. Yeah. Semifinal takes place Tuesday night, either okay. 9 Eastern or 7 Eastern on ESPN. Okay, I, got to, I just got to schedule my time. All right. Just schedule. Got to call my assistant. Fun show. Fran Fischilla, as I mentioned, will be on the show. Okay. I don't know if we're going to bring up the Johnny Manziel bender. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't. I might not. I also wouldn't bring up hands in the mouth. <laughs> Don't bring that up. We won't. We won't do that either. <laughs> uh, he'll join us. Kyle Davis had 18 points for BYU basketball last wow. night. Wow! He was one of those unexpected sources of awesomeness. Yeah. We'll ask him why his mentality was different last night. We'll also be joined by BYU uh, and NCAA All-American swimmer Jake Taylor from the NCAA championships in Atlanta. Man! Wow! Dude has, dude has a legit shot to compete in the Olympics. Seriously, that's yeah. cool. Yep. More legit than your shot of outrunning. Um, who did you? Who did you try? Oh, you tried to break the four forty. The the five second forty. Mm-hmm. I tried to run a four nine nine forty. Yeah. <laughs> Unofficially timed at a five one six. Yeah, but it was. Let's get real. Officially timed at a five. The grass was longer it was. than it but needed you did to be. Look faster than that. Thank you, Jason. Just saying. Thank you. Yeah. I would. I would just hang on to that. 
Well, but really, honestly, the camera was also kind of in slow-mo. Let's camera remember, adds, hey, the camera ca- adds 10 pounds. That's what I'm saying. The camera adds 10 pounds. You were running around with 10 extra pounds it you didn't count on. an extra second. And the grass was longer than normal. <laughs> there was, here, that's the thing. That's I remember. Thing. Like, I didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal, but it, the, the lawn out there had just been aerated, and mm. so there were like little dirt chunks everywhere. Yeah. I'm slipping all over the place like, this is not good. Those weren't dirt chunks, well. by the way. <laughs> You know, that's a funny story real quick because I know we don't have time. I had a friend who, who came out to visit me from Missouri, and they don't do the aeration thing. <laughs> and, and he got out of the car and started walking across the lawn. He was like tiptoeing. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like Uli, what are you doing? He's like, well, look at all this, this dog dropping. I'm like, it's, just, it's, it's, from, the, it's from the ground. It's not it's Your not dog, dog is so methodical. He's so Your meticulous. Dog has a problem, Jason. <laughs> he had never seen it before. He thought it was Holy it was something else. You're like our dog is OCD. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> he likes to line them up. Um, that's so gross. Okay, have a great show, gentlemen. Knock them dead, and uh, thanks for just playing around. Will do. Thanks, Matt. Remember who you are. Woo. Peace out, yo. That's so gross. Can you imagine? That is true, though. You're like, what is the deal? If you've never seen. Aeration. Some people listening out there don't even know what it is. They they have these devices that just basically pull plugs out of your lawn so that your lawn can breathe and get more water and not just be this compacted clod of whatever. Anyway, um, it's called aeration. Hey, a uh, couple things I got to tell you. One thing you've uh, you need to know about, other than the Seven Eleven debuting a Slurpee donut. Is listen to this. A cute two-year-old girl calls nine one one for help putting on her pants. Uh, a two-year-old girl in Greenville, South Carolina, ca- called nine one one to ask help putting on her pants. As Martha Lonis, the deputy who responded to the call, described the incident on Greenville County Sheriff's Facebook page, this little two-year-old girl dialed nine one one without her parents knowing. I show up and she comes to the door with her pants half on saying she can't get them on. So I sit down on the stairs and help her put her pants on. And then she proceeds to ask me to pick her up and hug her. The officer didn't dress down the youngster. Uh, Ilea was her name. And uh, for calling 911 for the non-emergency, she said, I thought it was awesome that at two years old she knew to call 911 at all. Um, The girl's mother, Pebbles Ryan, was at work when she found out what her daughter had done. As she wrote on Facebook, what will she do next, question mark? Anyway, Ben, don't get any ideas. If you can't get your pants on, that's why we tell you to wear the elastic band pants that always fit. Yeah, but what if they're dirty? Then just stay home and wash your pants. What about the show, the good of the show, Matt? Sometimes it's better without you. (laughs) And I mean that in the best way possible. Hey, we always like to end the show on a hero story. And today's hero is going to be a luggage handler from the Brussels airport attack. Listen to this. In the immediate chaotic aftermath of the Brussels airport bombing on Tuesday, panicked passengers fled the scene following their instincts to escape danger. But not Alphonse Leoria. Leora, an airport baggage security officer, stayed put and began assisting those injured in the blast, helping and in some cases pulling them to safety. In photos taken by of Leora by the BBC, smears of blood stain his fluorescent green work pants. He said, I saw people lying on the ground covered in blood who were not moving. Leora recalled 
to a French uh, press agency in an interview. A lot of people had lost limbs. I helped at least six or seven wounded people. Uh, the 40-year-old said, we took out some bodies that were not moving. It was total panic everywhere. Leora told Reuters another five people he carried out seemed to be dead. His bravery didn't go unnoticed on the Internet. One woman highlighted his actions as those befitting a helper as described by Mr. Rogers. Listen to this. When I was a boy, I would see scary things in the news, Mr. Rogers said. My mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping to this day, especially in times of disaster. I remember my mother's words, and I am always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. So to our good friend Alphonse Leora, you are a helper. You're also the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Folks, you all can be helpers. We all can put a a hand out there to help somebody up, to make the burdens easier for others, just to take care of somebody that seems down or uh, out and needs help. That's all the helper has to do. And uh, we just challenge all of us to do that. Again, we'll be back tomorrow to give you more ideas, more motivation, hopefully, And more help to see the good in the world. It's out there, folks, and it's in you. It's in every one of us. We just need to let that light shine. Stick with us, folks. We'll be back again tomorrow. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until then, take care of each other and make it a great one.